You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 496. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 3L at the Marriott Downtown Hotel in Columbia, South Carolina. Today's show is recorded on the 3rd of November, 2021. today's episode, authorities in Canada say a charter crew disregarded icing safety procedures leading to a fatal crash four years ago. Five passengers collapse on a flight from Germany to Greece. More news, your feedback, and today's plain tale, how the poppy grew. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 496 is ready for pushback. Thank you. That was Radio Roger Stern, an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast talk show covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, and... Joining us from across the pond. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain. For Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Oh, I, <laughs> I need to practice that more. <laughs> hit me in the heart every time you do that. You know, I used to work for a league of Majesty airline as well. I know you did. Majesty. Should I should I um, correct or uh, add no, that no, to your? No, no, no. It was just that you were you were about to say a spoonerism, but you correct yourself. Um, I actually did say one, but yes, yeah, so a captain for Virgin Atlantic <laughs> Airways. It's Captain Nick. Do I need to do the whole thing over? <laughs> no. Good. All right. Let's do this then. Stand by for news. All right, let's start with the first item in our news segment. This is a final report on an accident that occurred on the 13th of December in 2017. Uh, a Westwind Aviation Avion de Transport Regional, an ATR 42-300. Registration Charlie Golf Whiskey Echo Alpha, performing flight 282 from Fond du Lac, uh, Saskatchewan to Stony Rapids, Saskatchewan, Canada, with 20, I mean, where else, right? Um, is there any other Saskatchewan anywhere other than Canada? Mm, nope. Don't think so. Uh, not to my knowledge. Yeah. I mean, who else would name a place like that? But I, I don't know. I like it actually. Anyway, they had 22 passengers and yeah. Okay. 
uh, with 22 passengers and three crew, was in the initial climb out of Fond du Lac at about 18.15 local time when the aircraft lost height. By the way, uh, it was December, so 18.15 local time was dark. Uh, The aircraft lost height, collided with trees about 420 meters past the runway end, and impacted terrain coming to rest about 600 meters past the runway. And let's see, one passenger succumbed to injuries two weeks after the accident. Five passengers and one member of the crew received serious uh, injuries, and 18 other occupants received minor injuries, and the aircraft sustained substantial damage. Anyway, we have a final report now. Uh, released on the 28th of October, just a few days ago. Uh, let's see. Finding as Findings as to causes and contributing factors. When Westwind commenced operations into Fond du Lac Airport in 2014, three years before this accident, no effective risk controls were in place to mitigate the potential hazard of ground icing. Although both the flight crew and the dispatcher were aware of the forecast ground icing, the decision was made to continue with the day's planned route to several remote airports that had insufficient de-icing facilities. Although the aircraft's ice protection systems were activated on the approach to Charlie Z Foxtrot Delta, the aircraft's de-icing boots were not designed to shed all of the ice that can accumulate, and the anti-icing systems did not prevent ice accumulation on unprotected surfaces. As a result, some residual ice began to accumulate on the aircraft. Although the flight crew were aware of the ice, there were no handling anomalies noted on the approach. Consequently, the crew likely did not assess that the residual ice was severe enough to have a significant effect on aircraft performance. Subsequently, without any further discussion about the icing, the crew continued their approach and landed at uh, Charlie Zulu Foxtrot Delta. Weather conditions on the ground were conducive to ice or frost formation, and this combined with the nucleation sites provided by the residual mixed ice on the aircraft resulted in the formation of additional ice or frost on the aircraft's critical surfaces. Because the available inspection equipment was inadequate, The first officer's ice inspection consisted only of walking around the aircraft on a dimly lit apron without a flashlight and looking at the left wing from the top of the stairs at the left rear entry door. (laughs) Apparently it was cold and didn't want to actually walk around the aircraft. Uh, As a result, the full extent of the residual ice and ongoing accretion was unknown to the flight crew. Yeah, it's all very damning, isn't it? It you know, and and we should talk about. Oh, I forgot to share these pictures here. So that is um, um, above the aircraft view, probably taken from a drone or a helicopter, of the uh, crash site, and you can see the condition of this ATR. And let's see, I think I have another that we can see. Let me advance to the next slide. Nope, that didn't work. Okay. Uh, here is uh, the de-icing equipment at this airport. Now, you know, you laugh, and Liz is laughing, actually. Um, yeah. That, you would think, would, would there's no way that that could possibly be allowed or, you know, a, official de-icing equipment. 
But basically, if you, any means necessary, as long as you're not damaging the aircraft, is, is good, at least for the FAA and I would imagine most regulatory agencies. Um, but you just have to make sure that it does the job. And what we're looking at in the picture is um, basically one of those, uh, what would you call that, like a bug spray or a garden yeah, spray? Yeah, like a weed thing. Like a weed. weed spray kind of um, Absolutely, yeah. It's thing. one of those kind of hand, hand pump things you'd right. use to deliver liquid to your garden. Yeah. And it is, I'm sure it has the de-icing fluid in there, and then there's a. it's connected to a long sprayer uh, wand nozzle sort of thing. Um, but that, that's it. That was what their equipment consisted of. And well, they didn't even use that. Uh, they just looked around and thought, well, it was good coming in and looks okay. Now it doesn't look any worse than it was when we came in and we didn't have any handling anomalies coming in. So, you know, we're good to go. And apparently wow. this is something that they did quite often. And I guess, you know, it's kind of that, that, that bias that occurs when you keep doing the same thing for a long, long time and nothing bad ever happened. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, yeah, you're, you're quite right. Um, and Dale asks if that's uh, de-icing or anti-icing. Well, I can't tell just by looking at that. It only looks like one type of fluid, so I suspect it will be de-icing. Um, but the fact is that you use what's available. If you get up on the wing with a broom and brush the snow off uh, um, and use that to squirt to get the ice off, there would be a lot better situation than they were when they actually took off. Uh, I mean, the, the de-icing uh, system on the aircraft was rubber boots on the leading edge. So, you know, this is the way that works is that the boot inflates any ice that has formed uh, cracks and the airflow carries it away. Um, but it only usually uh, clears the, the front portion of the wing. So anything that's after that and on the control surfaces uh, isn't usually cleared. I mean, if it's a huge big sheet, that will all break away, but uh, that's not always the way it works. Um, and it certainly doesn't work on the ground, so you have to do something on the ground. Uh, and, you know, when you're getting airborne, uh, you might be at a different weight. The conditions might be different. Um, you know, the, you can't rely on the fact that the airplane flew okay on the approach. Will it fly okay on takeoff? Well, obviously not, because, you know, otherwise they wouldn't have crashed. Um, so all, all a bit all a bit uh, slapdash, a bit sad, uh, lacking the correct procedures, lacking the correct um, concern for icing because, I don't know, I was always terrified of icing um, because it can have such a dramatic effect on the um, aerodynamics of the aircraft uh, and the weight of the aircraft. So, you know, it's just something that's not to be played with and you only have to look back through the history of uh, crashes that have been caused by ice on the wings or on the control services um, to know that, you know, that there's your homework. If you don't believe it's it, it can happen to you, you there are a hundred accidents out there that will prove you wrong. So just don't get into this mindset that, uh, oh, it's been fine up to now, it'll be fine on this trip. It, it doesn't always work that way. No. And... Thank you to Dale Williams for uh, the term I was looking for, I guess, is normalization of deviation. And uh, so that, uh, that's not a good thing. 
No, it's not. It's definitely not. Uh, discipline. It's a disciplined profession, uh, being a pilot. And, you know, if unless you apply that discipline to everything you do, uh, then you're going to fall into a trap one day. So, you know, that that's the message for me out, uh, that I get out of this. You know, don't allow yourself to take shortcuts on a regular basis. Otherwise, something dreadful is going to happen to you one day. Exactly. Oh, looky here. What do we have? Hopefully she's ready. Um, let's see. We're playing the intro music for Steph from her Lakeside Studio in South. She's a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hi, Captain Jeff. Hi, Captain Nick. Sorry for my tardiness. That seems to be a recurring theme, but I made it. Well, it's Nick's fault. He always wants to start early. Yes, right? I think it is <laughs> no, Nick's no. fault, actually. On yes, time. Let's, no, On no. Time. Early, early. Some of us, <laughs> some of us have to work still for for uh, to earn our keep. Yeah, some of us have to sleep because we're old men. <laughs> uh-huh. right. That's one well. of the. It really is kind of the hardest thing about doing the show is trying to get all of us together in one place, uh, you know, at a decent time for everyone. And then of course, a, a lot of times, like for instance, uh, you may note, uh, Miami Rick is not with us. Uh, there are, there are times when, you know, we, we just can't pull it off. So, um, but we do try, we do try. So welcome Steph. Glad to have you with us. We've Thank really you. only, you know, talked about our first item in our new segment, which was that uh, crash of the uh, ATR-42 in uh, Saskatchewan. And uh, oh. they just released the final report. And basically, yeah, they didn't do the appropriate things to keep the ice off the airplane. To keep from crashing? Oh, and okay. keep it from crashing. Yeah, that was the bottom line. Yes. <laughs> Got yeah, it. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. Anyway. I don't think really much to say, and, and we kind of basically came to that um, uh, summation uh, when we talked about this a couple of years ago. So, the uh, yeah, again, once again, the uh, national, uh, the transportation um, board of Canada listens to our show, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'll tell smart. you a couple of stats that uh, <laughs> did surprise me reading this report. Just two uh, that. They sat on the ground for a while and didn't think that a lot was going to happen to the airplane. There wouldn't be a lot of additional ice laid down during their time on the ground. Um, However, they believe now that the aircraft's drag was increased by an additional 58% and its lift was decreased by 25% during the takeoff. Uh, with the additional uh, ice that had accreted during the ground stop. Now, that's a vast amount of ice. So how they missed all that, I, I, I do not know. It, I'm just you know, really worried. Yeah. Anyway. And the, the guy didn't fly the airplane particularly well either because mm-hmm. he got himself into a bit of a, a, um, a PIO in role, uh, which he didn't correct very well. Because uh, it had diminished roll damping because of the uh, poor handling qualities with all the ice on the wing, and um, uh, you know he, he the ailerons had in had sufficient roll control, uh, but the unexpected handling qualities with all the additional ice on uh, the pilot just didn't 
uh, fly the airplane particularly well. He might have got away with it if he'd been better at uh, responding to the oscillation that grew. But he got himself into a PIO, so increased the magnitude of this roll oscillation until uh, he lost control of the airplane. I agree, Nick. In fact, uh, so did the uh, the safety board in their final report. In fact, they have this um, image that we're showing on the uh, the the video podcast. Um, where the handling uh, wasn't the best in the world by the captain. Um, initially, the as soon as they lifted off, the airplane started banking to the left a little bit, uncommanded, and he counteracted with um, a 9.8% or 9.8 degree bank to the right. Uh, pitch at this point is between 10, 11, 10 and 12 degrees nose up. And then the airplane, as he's pulling the the pitch up higher, up to about 20.7 degrees, uh, the left wing drops uh, to 32.7 degrees. Uh, so that's much more significant than that initial 7 degrees left bank after a liftoff. And then he cataracts by going 24 degrees to the right and at least thanks to lower the pitch angle to 1.2 degrees up. And then the final uh, data that we have here, uh, the pitch is at 13.6. So the pitch is starting to come up again, but now the left wing drops 63.3 degrees left. Now that's a steep turn for those of you out there who are pilots. They know that, you know, when you're talking about uh, 60 degrees of bank, that is, that's steep. Is a steep turn. Yeah. And then, of course, the last uh, item here on this uh, image shows the final resting position, the crash site. Point well made, sir. Uh, anything else that I missed in there in the summary of the accident and the final report? No, but uh, who, which pilot in anywhere in the world tries to do a walk around at night without a flashlight? I'm going, really? Yeah. Well, sadly, there probably are a few that do. But my night vision is things. so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Just, I mean, th they're so cheap. Get a decent LED torch nowadays. Mm -hmm. yeah, for heaven's sake. Anyway. I agree. Said enough. All right. Let's move to this next one here. This is an update on that uh, crash of uh, the Transair Boeing 737 freighter. Uh, they crashed off of Hawaii back in, uh, when was this? Um, a couple months ago? Yeah, July 2nd of this year. And the National Transportation Safety Board has pulled from the Pacific Ocean the wreckage of a Boeing 737-200 freighter that crashed off the coast. Uh, let's see, they also recovered the jets to flight recorders and all major components of the aircraft and so there we go there's a picture of the front portion of the fuselage on the recovery barge and i have another photo or two to take a look at here we got uh, this one looks just sad to me it looks like looks like some kind of a living creature or at least once living mm -hmm. being yeah. pulled up um doesn't it look sad you know it's missing that front it, you know forward of the sad. of the wing Box. I think uh, it's amazing the pilot survived. Yeah, Liz is saying she thinks it's amazing that the that the pilot survived. 
that crash. I am too. I agree. And then uh, here's another one. Um, look at all those wires. Lots of wires. Now, Nev, Nev would be having a heart attack. Oh, yeah. Liz says that Nev would be having a hissy fit and a heart attack <laughs> seeing all those. Well, poor... surely they were, they were arranged um, a little they... bit more neatly prior to we... being disrupted by hitting the ocean. We have to make yeah. that assumption, stuff. We do. Okay. We do. <laughs> Anywho. Um, so. Uh, like a nice day anyway. And, well, yeah, it looks like a nice day during the recovery operation. I'm not sure yeah. how nice the weather was when they crashed. I forgot. I've forgotten. Uh, anyway, getting back to the article, um, the recovery of the recorders and virtually the entire airplane represents a major step in the forward in the investigation, says NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy. Uh, the the 737-200 crashed at night shortly after takeoff. Pilot, two pilots had reported anomalies in both engines and subsequently ditched into the Pacific. Um, but that's really, I, you know, I'm still kind of very curious about what caused both engines to fail. I mean, ha one engine failure at a time is not that unusual, but both, you know, and I'm hoping that they'll be able to discover what may have happened by analyzing the, uh, the data on the FDR and the CDRs. Yeah. Sadly, a lot of it will be supposition because some of the major causes of a double engine failure, such as fuel contamination, mm. uh, probably we, they weren't able to glean much after it's been sitting mm, soaking no. in the ocean for right. so long. That is true. That is true. All right. Next up, um, an accident. Um, and this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, now, I'm not sure if this is pronounced Corendon or Corendon. Um, never heard of the airline myself. It's a Turkish uh, holiday carrier, a leisure airline headquartered in Turkey, obviously. And uh, Anyway, am I pronouncing that correctly? Anybody? <laughs> no, <laughs> I idea. no idea. No? Okay. I, I don't speak Turkish. I eat Turkish, but okay. uh, I, don't yeah, I don't think that they're the same thing. Anyway, uh, oh, okay. A Corindon Airlines Europe Boeing 737-800 registration, nine hotel, Tango Juliet S. Uh, <laughs> I want to say X-ray. Echo. Echo, thank you. Um, yeah. You know, when I do that, when I'm starting to use the uh, phonetic alphabet, uh, in my head the entire time that I'm reading them, I'm thinking, don't screw this up, Jeff. You're a pilot and you're supposed to know this phonetic alphabet. And then sometimes, you know how sometimes you're talking and you're not really paying attention to what you're saying because you're so worried about saying something? Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's for sure. Anyway, they were performing flight 1050 from Cologne, Germany to Rhodes, Greece with 180 people on board. They were climbing out of Cologne nearing, nearing the top of the climb when a young woman entered the aft lavatory. The aircraft had just leveled off at flight level 370. Okay, they're up there pretty high near Ingolstadt, Germany, when the lavatory door opened and the woman fell out of the lavatory unconscious. There were reports that Captain Al had used the lavatory in the moments before this. No, wait a minute. I'm just kidding. Um, while passengers in the aft rows. <laughs> While passengers in the aft rows began to react, another male passenger in one of the aft seat rows, seat number known to the editor, hmm, I don't know what that means, uh, collapsed and became unconscious. A doctor and a nurse on board traveling as passengers began to provide first aid to the two patients when three more passengers collapsed, one after the other, and also needed medical attention. 
after some time, obviously after the cabin air conditioning had been reconfigured, been turned on. Obviously, <laughs> well, I know that I, I I'm like not the, really I sure like how the... to read that. <laughs> no, I, I just default read it as sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, Simon does like to use sarcasm. Uh, anyway, uh, so after the air, the cabin air conditioning had been reconfigured, the passengers began to recover. The flight continued to Rhodes for a landing without further incident about two hours, 50 minutes after departure from Cologne. The aircraft remained on the ground in Rhodes for 85 minutes, then performed the return flight and has remained in service since. The Aviation Herald learned about the occurrence on October 29th, 2021, and received documents in which the crew, as well as the doctor providing first aid, reported the occurrence. The crew, uh, signatures by the captain and the purser, confirmed in one case that the patient was pale and unconscious, then started to slowly recover. The onboard medical kit was used. The doctor, with his signature, stated in the same case that the patient was unconscious for about 20 to 30 minutes, then slowly recovered after treatment. The on doesn't say what the treatment was. The onboard no first aid medical kit had been used. A passenger uh, reported that there had been a strong odor of exhaust gases on board of the aircraft prior to departure. Following yeah, well, that's departure, not unusual. Yeah. Following departure, yeah. the young female had entered the aft lavatory shortly after the fastened seatbelt signs had been extinguished and subsequently fell out of the lavatory completely pale, unconscious, and trembling from head to foot when the lavatory door opened for unknown reasons. While cabin crew and surrounding passengers began to react, another male passenger in the aft seat, okay, we're talking, we're kind of saying the same thing again. A doctor and a nurse began to provide first aid. The doctor asked for a defibrillator. I don't know why I have trouble with that word. Got it. A defibrillator. However, none was available. Three more passengers became unconscious within the next few or a couple of minutes. It then appeared that the cabin air conditioning was changed. All five collapsed passengers began to recover. Hmm, a little bit more evidence. <laughs> Are we sure they didn't have the fish? Yeah, they probably all had the I fish. Think they all had I the don't fish. think they served the fish yet, actually. Oh, so. okay. It was pretty early on in the flight. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. I love it. Uh -oh. Oh, no, yes, someone's <laughs> going to need a good lawyer. Actually, that yeah, I think the passengers probably have the right to to question what the hell was going on. Well, you might be wondering what the airline itself uh, had to say uh, officially. Well, they reported, quote, only four passengers felt unwell. Cabin yeah. crew immediately took necessary actions for those four passengers in compliance with cabin first aid procedure during flight. A doctor and a nurse were on the aircraft and made promptly medical intervention to the passengers feeling unwell, but they could not found any serious symptoms. Of course, this English is not their main language here. Uh, the doctor did not recommend the crew to divert, and he did not use the aircraft medical kit. <laughs> Wait a oh. minute. <laughs> I thought they said that they had. Anyway, which was made available for him during his assistance. We also would like to inform you that after the relevant occurrence, maintenance records, recorded parameters of subject flight through flight data monitoring, and crew reports have all been destroyed. Wait, no, have been analyzed <laughs> by our maintenance and safety departments, and no abnormal parameter which might cause the occurrence has been found. On the return flight of the same aircraft from Rose to Cologne with 184 passengers, no similar complaint had been received. Kindly note that a report of the occurrence was notified to the Civil Aviation Authority of Malta. 
Germany's BFU uh, reported on October 29th that they have no knowledge of the occurrence. No such report was received between the end of September and middle of October. And the Aviation Herald also sent email inquiries to Malta's Civil, Civil Aviation Directorate and Greece's AAIASB, and no replies have yet been received. Hmm. Sounds like maybe a little bit of cover-up, perhaps? Nothing well, perhaps hoping it will go away, I think. Yes. Well, so, you know, I, I think one of the first things that many of us think of is some kind of a pressurization issue, right? But sure. why only the people in the back? That's the part that I'm not clear about. I mean, wouldn't that affect everybody on the jet? You would think it would be uh, most yeah. susceptible people first, and probably more than yeah. just four, and not in any one particular section of the aircraft, presuming that. Mm -hmm. Micah thinks it's I, I'm, I'm not really sure uh, how the airflow system in the 737 works, whether you know it exhausts at the back, in which case the air with the most carbon dioxide is going to be sitting around the back of the airplane. I, I really don't know, but... Uh, uh, the fact, to me, the suspicious thing, if if there is any suspicion to be generated from this, uh, is the f that they uh, turned the airplane around in 85 minutes and flew it again, which either meant they were really just not concerned about finding the cause or they kind of knew what it was and went, oh, okay, right, well. Yeah, we, we know what it is, so we, we don't have to worry yeah. about We just know. won't don't do, do that, that again. Don't do that exactly. again, and don't tell anybody. Because if it had been something noxious in the um, air conditioning system that had gone on to and it, and it was flowing to the aircraft, uh, you know, like Airbus and several aircraft types uh, have had uh, toxic oil leaks from the engines that got into the aircraft and have caused distress amongst the passengers. Uh, so all those kind of things, it might have been mass hysteria. But you, if you don't know the cause, you're gonna you're you're really obliged to do quite a detailed engineering inspection of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can do that in an 85-minute turnaround. Mm -hmm. Nope. Yep, I agree. A mass hysteria event would be a, uh option where you've ruled out all other possible causes first. Yes, a good point. Yep. All right, well, I don't know if we'll ever hear anything else about this. I hope we do, so we can figure out if it was a human error or some kind of a mechanical issue or both. I suspect Simon will be on the case. Hopefully if he sounds like it. okay, mm -hmm. sounds like he's a little upset about the um, <laughs> response from some of these agencies. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, this next one is um, this looks like interesting. A yeah. It's a, it's a doozy. <laughs> Hang on. Let me uh, get something ready to, I know what well, you're getting ready. <laughs> do you? I don't know if you do. I was just a picture. Actually. I oh. do. I know exactly. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. That actually was not at the top of my head, but now I can. Um, I'm ready. All right. Uh, this is from a what's it called? AviationSafety.net. ASN. A Swearingen Merlin 3B twin turboprop aircraft sustained substantial damage when attempting to take off from a runway that had been closed for repair. Uh, they had landed at Gunada. Is that the way you pronounce that, Nick? Gunada? 
Australia? Uh, Canada, I would say, personally. Okay. Uh, since uh, you could, I just have to put an, an Australian accent on. Canada. Oh. Yeah. That's how Sounds like you're saying Canada yeah. with an Australian accent. You say, no, that would be Canada. Canada. Not <laughs> okay. Canada. Okay. Yeah, I see the distinction. Uh, no. Um, anyway, this occurred on the afternoon of night. Okay. On the 19th of August, 2020, and was parked there overnight. Okay. So they came in on the afternoon of the 19th, parked overnight. The following morning, in line with a NOTAM published the previous day. That's what NOTAMs are. They're just a bunch of garbage. Or are they? Uh, closing the runway from 7 o'clock in the morning to enable runway repair works, a work crew had evacuated or excavated, not evacuated, excavated two holes from the runway pavement, measuring 3 meters wide by 5 meters long and about 30 centimeters, which is about a foot, deep. That afternoon, about 12.30, while the work crew was off-site from the airport during their lunch break, the Merlin pilot commenced to take off run on the runway for a flight to the Gold Coast. As the aircraft accelerated, the pilot saw the two rectangular holes excavated from the runway pavement. The pilot attempted. truth. They weren't here yesterday. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I don't remember that. Who put those there? <laughs> <laughs> the, the pilot attempted to avoid the holes, uh, but they were struck by the aircraft's left main landing gear. The aircraft veered off the runway here we go there's a little picture of that nope. uh, the pilot was the sole occupant on board the aircraft was uninjured the atsb investigation found that during pre-flight planning the pilot had not checked for relevant notams including one stating that the gunada airport was closed due to works in progress not very good i'm sorry the investigation also found that while the work crew was away on their lunch break, there were no there was no works safety officer on site. Further, while a white cross had been placed at the main windsock, visible to aircraft arriving overhead, there were no ground visible unserviceability markings on the runway as required by the Civil Aviation Safety Regulations Part 139 Manual of Standards (MOS) for aerodromes. This requirement had recently been changed. And uh, the reason why the airport operator there had not received notification of the updated uh, manual of standards is because, well, the email included on CASA's mailing list was for a member of staff who had left the operator. No <laughs> auto reply, forwarding, or hard bounce was in place on the email address, so CASA was not aware that the email had not been received. Wow. Um, yeah, it, like that's an excuse. I mean, I understand that. You know, despite what uh, the head of uh, the NTSB has said, you are obliged to take a look at your Renault terms. Why they issued it only like a few hours before, the day before, I, I don't know, because, you know, you'd think they'd given the guy a bit of notice that he might not be able to get airborne uh, on the day he After he to, landed, yeah. Exactly. So why would so, you go there in the first place if you can't? Yeah, so Get give the out. guy a few days' notice so he can look at the new notices and go, well, oh, Gunnandar ain't no good, mate. Let's go somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I and then uh, putting no visual markers. Jeff and I were talking about this earlier. Put, not That's putting ridiculous. a barrier across the runway or the taxiways, uh, you know. The customary, sort of, like, large X at the end of the runway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, that's it, what we do here. Yeah. 
Most airports I've seen, even little ones, have got a sort of X on wheels. Yeah, they can <laughs> just you push it. Up. Yeah, yeah, slide it onto the runway when when there's some temporary work in progress. But uh, it all all a bit gash. Uh, and then, of course, ultimately, uh, no work safety officer to uh, intervene and stop the guy. Uh, I don't suppose there was an air traffic information service for this. Mm, doesn't sound like it. It looks like an uncontrolled situation. Yeah, because yeah. somebody was saying that, that uh, there were undoubtedly birds in the vicinity of the airport. <laughs> well, that's a given. <laughs> yes. It's definitely in the notams at the very top in bold. <laughs> Birds yeah, in vicinity of airports. Aren't they kind of involved because there's only one type for no time and it's and capitals and it's all the same and there's no such thing as bold. I know, Can't I have kidding. that. Yeah, I know. But uh, other people may not realize oh, that no yes. times are really hard to read. It's like reading what, you know, You everyone has that one friend that will send you text message in all caps or emails in all caps all the time. <laughs> That's what reading no times is like. All yeah, caps. Exactly. Like they're yelling yeah. at you. Well, that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not surprised the guy didn't notice the no-times, but the airport, airport and the workers could have made an effort, left, left, left some gear out mm-hmm. in the middle of the runway or something mm-hmm. to tell him. Yeah. I do, I do they all like, had to leave to go on their lunch break? Like they didn't, can't bring their lunch with them? Hang well, there's a really oh. good place really close to the airport mm. that they wanted to yes. check out. Barbecue <laughs> yeah. kangaroo or something? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. It was a Taco uh, Tuesday, I think. Yes. Ah. Uh, well, that's a good spot for some buff and barra, actually. So that would have been a good meal up there. Don't know what that means. No idea. Buff Buffalo and Barramundi. Oh, surf and turf. Surf and but turf. Australian oh, version. Gotcha. Gotcha. Buffalo steak. You had to be there, I guess. Piece, a piece of barramundi. Lovely. Mm, very nice. All right. Alrighty. Let me uh, remove that image. And actually, I don't no. have to do anything anymore. This I know, Liz. I'm I'm making you feel um, not Very needed. Very redundant. I, I think well, you I'm know what? Going to be quitting. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, show you how to uh, gonna train you on this uh, how right. how to use train it. Me up. Actually, it, it would help because uh, I have I think too many things going on at the same time over okay. here, well, and I'm ready. my brain uh, can't handle it. You're what's left of it? Okay, here we go. Um, next item. In our news segment is this from Greg Peterson. And, of course, many of us uh, who follow this sort of thing have been reading about this uh, in recent days. And it is a little alarming. He said, hey, crew, it's been a while since I've sent in any feedback. And I was reading a couple of articles on the 5G interference with radio altimeters. I've attached links to the two articles. Do you guys have any thoughts on this issue? Yeah, it's not good. Uh, the FAA plans warning to pilots. Of course, I'm, if you're watching the video, you'll see that they have issued a special airworthiness information bulletin uh, dated uh, November 2nd, which was yesterday, 2021. Um, U.S. air safety regulators are preparing to issue warnings to pilots and airlines about potential interference with key cockpit safety systems by a new 5G wireless service slated to go live as soon as early December, according to current and former government and aviation industry officials briefed on the matter. The Federal Aviation Administration has been drafting a special bulletin. Okay, we've already talked about that. Um, uh, Talking about how um, certain automated features used by pilots to help fly and land planes could be affected by wireless towers on the ground transmitting the new 5G signals. 
the cockpit systems commonplace in modern air travel help planes land in poor weather, prevent crashes, and avoid mid-air collisions. Okay, this is a news item to the general population. We're a lot of us here, maybe most of us, are pilots or familiar with uh, these things in aviation. And specifically, what they're concerned about is an in- instrument called, or we call it a radio altimeter, sometimes called a radar altimeter. That's a downward facing, uh, I think using radar technology that uh, bounces the radar wave to the ground and then back to the receiver on the airplane. And it lets you know exactly how many feet the airplane is, or at least that part of the airplane uh, above the ground. And when we're doing especially the low visibility approaches, category two, category three approaches, Um, In almost every case, only a couple of exceptions here in the United States, uh, a radio altimeter is required to perform the the approach because you need that precision. And uh, as I said, it's just a it's if we have even one of our radio or radar altimeters out of service on the jet uh, that usually or almost always says we can't do anything lower than a category one approach, which is, which does not use that instrument. Um, so, uh, you have big metropolitan areas that have these fancy new 5g antennas put up and you, uh, run into a low visibility situation where you require a category two or category three approach to get the airplane on the ground. And now you have the risk of something interfering with that radio altimeter. You're basically saying, um, nope, sorry, you're going to have to go somewhere else and then co- create havoc in the, um, in the national airspace system. Uh, apparently, the FCC and the FAA are arguing with each other, two uh, U.S. agencies, about you know, whether it's unsafe or not or if it really does affect this particular device or not. Uh, They're discussing the issue and uh, they haven't come to a conclusion yet. It gets into a little bit of uh, detail in this first article talking about the different, um, the frequency ranges and such. I don't know, uh, Steph, did you want to talk a little bit about that or? Do I want to talk about it? Um... I I can. Okay, so uh, the 5G runs up to a 3.98 gigahertz um, in, in the C band, which is just the, the, the name of that uh, frequency range. Uh, now, our um, rad alts start at 4.2. So we've got about uh, 0.3 uh, of a gigahertz uh, separation between those two uh, frequencies. Now, if... Um, <laughs> You might think that's a reasonable amount, but we're talking gigahertz here. The the wavelengths are tiny, um, which is one of the reasons why 5G is very short range. And the other reason is, uh, of course, why it can pass so much data, because it's a, a, it's a very, very small um, frequency band. Uh, so the the problem is that uh, you only need to, to have some uh, equipment on the ground in the 5G that slips uh, out of range of its frequency, and it's not like you can put a, you know, a physical barrier on it. These things have to be tuned, and because they're sitting out there in the weather, I think it would be quite easy for those um, um, big uh, antennas uh, that carry 5G, and they're going to be 
everywhere uh, to slip out of frequency. You only need a few of them to do it. And uh, it could start interfering with the radio altimeters of all the aircraft passing overhead. And they're relatively close. You know, the ones that are you know, coming down uh, towards the airfield boundary, the aircraft are only going to be 500 or 1,000 feet away. Uh, that is no distance at all. So uh, you really don't want large amounts of... Um, that kind of that radiation on that frequency very close to your antennas, let alone all the phones on board. Now, generally speaking, we've come to the conclusion over the years that the frequency that traditional phones work on doesn't affect anything on the aircraft. But um, 5G is going to be new, and it'll be something different. And the people with their 5G phones are going to be sitting only a few feet away from... Um, the antennas which are on the belly of the aircraft, so usually down the back end. Uh, so, you know, there's a potential here for the radio altimeter to, to either be swamped and stop working or just or misread, which would be a dreadful thing to happen because if you get a false uh, altitude indication, that could have dire consequences since the aircraft is using that and the pilots are using that uh, to judge very accurately their height over the ground as they make a low visibility approach. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure. I I don't understand the exact way this technology works. I'm, I know that the phones are going to be receiving the signal, but will they be transmitting a 5G signal back to a cell tower? I'm, I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, I think if your phone is uh, on, on 5G, you'll be able to both receive and transmit okay. in that frequency because uh, otherwise, you know, if you could only receive it, it rather mm. defeats the object of being able to pass large amounts of data. You mm. might yeah, want to pass a nice big video. You've just taken a view on an airplane crashing um, <laughs> to your <laughs> yeah, friends because they're using your we'll live video. Signal. Actually, <laughs> not working. <laughs> yeah. You have to send it; just transmit it live for the whole world. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think I think the phones are going to be transmitting on five G as well. You know, just uh, if you're not familiar with the 5G technology, uh, it's purportedly like up to 100 times faster than the fastest technology in use right now on cell phones. So it's a big deal. And we all love our devices and amazing connectivity and bandwidth and such. But uh, we got to make sure that we aren't, you know, risking people's lives on airplanes. And pilots, too. Um, you know, so um, let's see. Uh, in this article. Pilots this, are people, too. This for, Pilots are people, too. You're right, Liz. Um, <laughs> not everybody would agree, but I agree. Um, I was going to say pilots aren't people, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, well. No, I'm just oh. <laughs> no, I, was thinking, I was thinking this exact same thing as Liz. It's just funny that she yeah. said it out loud. Anyway. Let's see. This article says on December 5th. Um, that will be 46 of the country's largest metropolitan areas uh, with a lot of bigger airports associated with them. Um, just keep flying to those little airports, Jeff. Yeah, just yeah, that's right. I don't have to worry so much. I'll just keep flying to my little airports. <laughs> Although we do yeah. fly to big ones, too. Eh. No. Anyway, you know what? Canada. Now, we should look up to Canada for some common sense. Always. Always um, well, yes. I don't know. Nobody lives we there. We may not have they? flashlights, but well, <laughs> she's a, we a few little airports. She says they may not have flashlights, but we do have common <laughs> sense. 
It says Canada has taken what seems to be a common sense approach by limiting and restricting 5G transmitters around big airports. Radar altimeters are highly directional by nature, so it would seem that keeping the high-powered cellular signals away from the approach paths and runway thresholds is a good first step. It doesn't have to end there, though. By establishing no 5G zones around airports, the Canadian regs naturally create the ideal environment to test just how serious the threat to ILS systems is under real-world conditions. In the meantime, cell customers near the airports can make do with their existing service while the issues are sorted out. 4G. Oof, what a come down. Yeah. Well, I so know. sorry that I... you spent all this money on your fancy new phone. You're still only going to get LTE or maybe just Edge. I don't know. So yeah. Oh, I hope not Edge. <laughs> you can't go back to that. <laughs> no, it's terrible. Oh, that's painful. That's like dial-up. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Man. Anywho. So... We'll uh, see what happens with this little fight between the FCC and the FAA and what's going to happen out there. Uh, I mean, you know, as I said, this time of year, you know, late November, early December, when they're going to roll out all this stuff uh, is the time of year where you start getting those weather systems that uh, give you those low visibility approaches at big airports like New York and Boston and other big places. Chicago. Yeah. So we'll see how this all plays out, I guess. Now, here's some pretty crappy news. This is a crappy story. Um, a man, uh, this is from uh, airlive.net. No um, pun intended uh, at all. Yeah, pun intended. A man was covered in poop after a plane to Heathrow yeah, dumped toilet waste <laughs> over his backyard. He was enjoying the sun in his backyard. Wait a minute. I'm skeptical. Yeah, this was is this near Heathrow and he was Heathrow enjoying the sun. The sun? UK? <laughs> In his backyard in Windsor, southeast England, when a passing pl- <laughs> when a passing plane dropped toilet waste over him and his garden furniture, a local counselor said during a recent meeting, the unfortunate the unfortunate incident in which a plane discharged sewage took place in July. Uh, his whole garden was splattered in a very unpleasant way, said Karen Davies, ward counselor for Cluer East during the October 14th meeting. He was out in his garden at the time, and it was a really horrible, horrible experience. <laughs> Is it just me, or was that the most English way to state how terrible yeah. it was for this poor it guy? It is very English. Yeah, the whole Splattered garden. in a very unpleasant way. Garden umbrellas huh. and him mm-hmm. were covered in poop. It's absolutely dreadful, she said during the meeting. Davies said that there are several incidents every year in which frozen sewage is dropped along flight routes. Windsor is on a flight path to London's Heathrow Airport, which is about eight miles away from the historic town. The sun, let's see. um, But Davies said that raw sewage landing in some raw sewage landing in someone's backyard is much rarer. Another counselor suggested the summer's warmer weather might have contributed to it. Uh, Let's see. White. Go ahead. No, Nick's got Nick's pulling a face. Oh, Nick! Nick is. Uh, I'm sorry. I was I just thought... pulling faces at the inaccuracies of this, uh, because of course uh, we know that uh, the sewage, the the from the toilet, is kept on board the aircraft in tanks. The only thing that dribbles overboard is grey water from the sinks. Mm-hmm. So, and that is occasionally. What, um, you know, uh, when those heaters on the pipes at the bottom fail and occasionally get a buildup of ice which drops off. Now, the, the blue ice that used to drop off old Boeings 
Uh, I don't know where that comes from. Is that from a leaking sewage tank or something? It's a, a leaking valve that um, in flight over time, it, you know, a little bit comes out and then it freezes and then a little bit more on top of it and freezes, kind of like hailstones, you know, that how they're yeah. formed, you know, they can grow be very grow. tiny and grow and grow and grow, you know, if they're, they continue to be in that up and down um, wet environment in a, in a cloud. Convective, and so, yeah. so I think that um, the, uh, the same thing happens. And then this big ball of blue ice gets so big that it finally can't adhere anymore to the airplane. And then yeah. it just finally breaks free and drops. Um, so, but that, that's that's ninety nine percent of the time it's a lump of ice. It's, I mean, don't get me wrong; it can be pretty nasty. There'd be some cases of it coming through people's, you know, the roof of their garage and wrecking their car, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But even that's very rare. How you, you devil you get soft uh, liquid uh, sewage out of an aircraft uh, is usually very hard, unless someone. List the valve on the base of the uh, tank. That it, well, don't you have that? Uh, a... You don't have that switch on the Airbus. Um, the <laughs> raw sewage. No, Release raw sewage. Just the seven one seven has that. <laughs> <laughs> our our uh, our audience uh, is being very clever as as usual. Um, positive. They're positive. People. Well, yeah. Well, Dale uh, suggests maybe uh, wasn't it due to just one very large overweight pigeon? <laughs> and then of course, I haul boxes always the positive one. Uh, he says, think positive. It'll produce beautiful flowers next spring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some nice Possibly. fertilizer. Yeah. Possibly. Anyway. Yeah. So, just wanted to share that. It's always, you know, you see a story about poop falling and, and covering <laughs> somebody. It's just, you got to cover it, you know? It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a crappy job, but somebody's got to do it. All right. And I like the fact that one of the parish councillors had worked with airlines for four decades and said what happened was so rare. So uh, our point of view is being supported by some of the councillors. Oh, yes. Yes, it yeah. is. Well, look at this. Um, here is an incident that UPS Boeing 747 tipped onto its tail. Is he getting airborne? Uh, well, yeah. Yes, uh, right there from the, yeah. uh, from the ramp. Rotated a little early. Wow. Yeah, he shouldn't he be on the runway when he does that? Nah, it's a new, uh, new technology. <laughs> yeah. Testing out. So uh, this is the Seoul Incheon Airport in South Korea. Uh, the Boeing 747-400 freighter, November 572 uh, UP or uh, UPS, arrived at Incheon uh, as flight... 12 from Dubai International Airport was parked when the incident took place on 27 October. Uh, the aircraft reportedly suffered an issue with its main landing gear, tipping the plane backwards and leaving the nose lifted off. Inspection after the incident found hydraulic fluid uh, leaked on uh, around the stand. The aircraft was empty and there was no loading or unloading taking place. No one was injured in the incident. The plane was scheduled to depart for Cologne, Germany when which eventually got canceled. I guess not Cologne, but the flight. Um, the mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I did hear from an anonymous source, I did a little bit of research on this, mm -hmm. that what actually happened uh, was the crew was on the aircraft. There was a ground ramp worker uh, that for some reason needed to um, have something in, that was contained in the captain's wallet. The captain opened up the window and <laughs> threw his wallet oh. out, and that's and the result. Unfortunate, yeah. yeah. The yeah. center of gravity would just shift is yes. so far. Ma yeah. a major shift of gravity. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
All righty. Oh, <laughs> it was the same overweight pigeon sitting on the tail. It's <laughs> <laughs> very clever. Yes. Wow. This pigeon is everywhere, causing Dale, all kinds Dale of. Dale Williams apparently has a thing about overweight pigeons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I feel like he's he may have Love been personally it. attacked by overweight pigeons yeah. in the past. He might have some kind of a childhood trauma mm. <laughs> related oh. to that. All right. Well, we'll never know, will we? But uh, in the meantime, what we can know, it's time for us to get to know each other and what we've been doing, what the crew has been doing since the last show, which was not really that long ago, actually, last Friday. So, who would like to entertain and inform us first regarding what they've been up to? Me? Okay. I'm not sure who Nick is pointing at there. I, well, he's pointing he's to pointing his camera. Yes, at himself, <laughs> yeah. actually. Well, one of you guys. Oh, oh. okay. Doesn't matter to me. Why don't you start, Steph? Sure. Um, what have I been up to? Just the usual. We did some flying on Sunday. What, running another marathon? Not yet. That's next weekend. <laughs> uh, really? Next weekend? Yeah. This weekend. Coming up. This weekend. Sunday. Okay. Like wow. the the next weekend that will occur. Was that, is that Boston? No, it's New York. Boston already happened. New York City. So. New York City. Yes. Oh, that's you right. You, you mean in like four days' time or five days' time? What, however many days from now, Sunday is. Uh, I, I don't know what day it is today. I'm not sure. It's Wednesday, been... <laughs> Thursday, <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Four days' time. Yeah. Well, you I, know who you are, have, though. That's good. I know who I am. Um, and actually, we can we can answer some more questions about who am I or who I am, whichever way we should say that <laughs> appropriately. Well, apparently, someone who I'm not sure if they listen to our show or not, but they listen to another aviation podcast has concerns about who I mm. might be. Okay, should we? You want me to we listen to what they have to say about that? Okay, yeah, sure. Hang on, uh, let me uh, cue this up and uh, see what uh, this is all about. Hello APG, this is Charlie Hotel. As you can tell, I come from opposing bases. I found them before I found you, and therefore they are my favorite. Anyways, I have a burning question. It's been plaguing me for a while now. I have listened to a good 20 plus episodes of yours, and I have no proof that Dr. Steph is a real doctor. I don't believe she is. The only tip that we may get that might prove she could be a doctor is when Jeff introduces her and in her title says backstabbing jumper dumper. That backstabbing part could indeed have something to do with a very large needle. Now, that's all the indication we could get. I would like some proof that she is indeed a real doctor and I would like to know her specialty. That right there would give me a good indication. Anyways, I am from the medical professions as well. I am a drug dealer. A professional drug dealer, if you will. That way I don't get into trouble. Anyways, I do have a multiple complaints with the doctor, Steph, if she is a doctor. And primarily, that is if you are sending a script to your friendly local neighborhood pharmacy. Please, for the love of God, please, please proofread your scripts. I can't tell you how many scripts I get a day that have some sort of issue on them. One of the ones I've been getting a lot recently is a script with no directions. Comes over like, take every day. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean take one pill every day? Take seven pills every day? 
or take as many pills as the patient feels they need. Another one I commonly get is a medication, appropriate directions, and then quantity that doesn't match that. So take two tablets twice a day, and then the doctor writes for three tablets total. What, what, what the heck? Like, just, just read it, please. That's all you have to do. Now, since he's come over a lot, I will call the office or send some sort of message, and I'll let it wait a little bit. And then if the patient comes, and I still haven't heard back after a couple hours, I do what I like to do best. I pester you guys. I will call you. I will page you. Hopefully I get a response. And since I am truly operating on behalf of the patient, I don't know if you're on vacation or not. I appear to have called and or paged doctors on vacation. Doesn't make them very happy, but if it makes my patient happy, I will do it. So just letting you know, it will save you time and it will save you being pestered on your off days if you just proofread your scripts. Anyways, this is Charlie Hotel. I appreciate everything you guys do and I look forward to your new podcast. And in all honesty, Dr. Steph, if you are a real doctor, I appreciate everything you do. Charlie Hotel, out. Hmm. Ah, there's the truth of it at the end. It's Charlie Hotel. Um, I think you're looking for the medical specialty podcast um, for answers to these burning <laughs> questions um, and perhaps um, 101 in prescription writing and how to appropriately write a SIG uh, for your friendly local pharmacist. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, actually, let's just real quick, because there might be some new listeners who don't actually know. My specialty is physical medicine and rehabilitation. I do non-surgical management of uh, spine problems um, and a lot of my procedures are um, uh, those regarding, so epidural steroid injections are a big part of what I do on a day-to-day basis, but we see, evaluate people and, and do what we can for um, trying to get people feeling better from their neck and back concerns she without has having to, be to see my surgical because colleagues. Even in our, our getting to know you um, echo, thing echo. on the, oh, I'm echoing. All right. No, you're not. No. Oh, no. I'm I'm just echoing for uh, Liz. Sorry, Liz. Um, On our getting to know you banner, if you're watching, uh, you know, she doesn't watch the video, I bet. I was going to say, you got to watch the video, Charlie Hotel, because I have all of my my many and distinguished medical degrees and awards, accolades, licensure things. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. Yeah, that internet's really good, isn't it? You're very useful. Yes. (laughs) I printed them all myself. They look very official. (laughs) They're very fuzzy. (laughs) How do we know that that Charlie Hotel is actually someone qualified to ask you these questions? I don't know. (laughs) So, I mean, she's demanding proof. I'm demanding proof from Charlie Hotel that she's anything to do with the medical Uh profession and Uh she's allowed to ask these questions. Oh, no, I think think she she very much is. Her uh, complaints are, are well noted, but I can assure Charlie Hotel that I am not an offender of the things that she um, sees on a day-to-day basis. Good. I would and and why she thinks that shouting at you is going to affect the entire medical profession, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know Don't know who these doctors are who don't have electronic, electronic um, prescribing um, 
on their electronic medical records because everything is already pre-populated. It's virtually impossible to mess it up unless you delete everything and send it blank, uh, which it usually okay. won't let you do. Well, yeah. apparent, apparently that that's one of Charlie Hotel's pet peeves. And also she wanted to do a little rant. <laughs> but Yeah, she's um, a real uh, curmudgeon, isn't she? Mm. She's the young curmudgeon. Oh, the young curmudgeon. Yeah. Anyway, well, you know what? We welcome the fact that you're you're watching or listening to our show, Charlie Hotel, and uh, I know but it's kind of a letdown. That, oh, sorry. Rest assured that we will be talking exclusively about aviation things, very rarely about medical things, because this yeah. is an aviation podcast. It is. Good point. And right. my, well, it is. The fact that I'm a doctor, just incidental. Exactly. Um, so, what, so you're about to run a marathon. Gonna run a marathon, uh, and you're yep. a, a real doctor. Yep. And what else? And I did some flying this weekend. Excellent. Just on Sunday because the weather was not great on Saturday. Um, and we'll talk more about um, jumper dumping operations here in a little bit. So I might okay. um, jump into that then. All right. But it was oh, a good day. It. Good day for us on. Uh -huh. Yeah. All right. Good day for us on Sunday. Yep. Excellent, Captain Nick. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to say I'm a little disappointed in the number of emails I've received uh, concerning the 500th at Farnborough. So this is exclusively from UK and Europe. Um, um, now, uh, one really nice one I've received is from our great friend uh, Tillman, who is coming over from his fantastic circus hotel in Berlin to attend so really looking forward to seeing uh you tillman brilliant thanks uh, uh and be rest assured if uh, you're traveling a long distance do let me know and uh, a place will be uh guaranteed for you uh but uh, it looks like um i've set the the um the barrier the branch the jump a little high uh, the hurdle a little high for some people because we're not getting many people writing in saying, oh, this is my suggested clip and and uh, can I come to the 500th? Uh, so start uh, getting your emails uh, fired up, people, because, um, you know, uh, we well, want to see you all. You've clearly intimidated them, Nick, by your high standard. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about that, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got a great panel. Don't don't come to see just me. We're going to have Captain Nigel, hopefully Captain Al. Uh, he's still waiting to see he's got time off. We've got Pilot Pip. We've got Nev from PTUK, perhaps one other from PTUK. Yet to find out about that. Uh, we've got Adam Spink from uh, Heathrow Air Traffic. Uh, they'll all be uh, on the panel. And... Um, you know, the, uh, everyone else is going to be there. And if you want to have uh, a voice uh, on the show for the 500, then uh, come up with a decent uh, clip or a good old question or a fine bit of fi feedback. And um, uh, then, you know, we'll uh, uh, we'll make sure you, you, you're you there and you've got a seat. Neil's worried. Uh, and I, I'm, uh, Neil, to be absolutely fair, I'm a bit flat strapped at the moment uh, between the last show and this show, getting a plane turned out. So, uh, at the moment, I'm shoving all the emails, or the, even the few that I've received, and I have received yours, into a folder to look at uh, when I get a spare moment. So, you know, with me. It, it, the lineup that you just described is truly a star studded lineup. And Still I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to attend. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? 
because of that high standard, the high bar that you've set, Nick, I think people are like going through every single episode to try to find the very best little nugget of goodness (laughs) that they possibly can. And that's why you're not receiving it. It's taken them a while. I'd like to remind people that there are excellent nuggets in every single episode because Mm -hmm. we only record high quality (laughs) content. Good point. Thanks for noticing. I appreciate that. Uh, Yes. Oh. Just pick your favorite. And you can always put in two two emails, Neil, uh, and we'll pick the best one. All right. And if any of those, by the way, conflict with any of the ones that we have from this side of the pond, well, that's automatically deleted. Just kidding. <laughs> don't, don't do that. No, we don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, that you, it's just to come to Farnborough, you'll get a, uh, a look around the museum beforehand. Uh, and um, most of us are staying overnight in the Aviator uh, Hotel nearby. So get yourself a room there, and uh, you can join us for beers afterwards uh, and breakfast the next morning, and we can have a good old uh, chit-chat since it'll be a Saturday morning. We'll probably all sit around and uh, have a good old get-together. Get a room. Yeah, I'm sharing with (laughs) Captain Nigel, actually, which might be a disaster. Mm. Good luck. Yeah, definitely. That does not sound good. There is something going to be special with uh, Chicken Nuggets and Steph and Al, but they've got to organize that between them. How much time have we got? Not a lot. Okay. Although we may have more now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, anything else, sir, besides the uh, 500 episodes? No, no, none of that. Exactly one month from the day. Nope. Where in my poppy? Where in my poppy? Oh, poppy day coming. Oh, a little teaser. You, you love to do that, yeah. don't you? Well, no, I'm just, just reminding everyone that uh, it's time to buy your poppy and mm-hmm. give a little money to uh, the Royal British Legion. It's that time of the year. All right. Well, I'm going to update you on Simon, uh, his health, the guy that runs the Aviation Herald. We had mentioned on an earlier show that he was scheduled to have um, a growth Uh, removed a tumor um, removed and uh, this is the update Um, this is October 29th the football the tumor that he's referring to it's a what's the uh, benign tumor I guess is the way to describe it yeah Um, I think so was scheduled to see the light of the day again on November 2nd which was yesterday Today, however, I received a call from the clinics that due to heightened alert status on COVID-19, my operation has been postponed for another three weeks, probably. I might receive a phone call, however, to call me in for the operation on short notice. Sarah has been my strength and background support throughout these times. We had planned to get together shortly after the operation, but those plan these plans are now disrupted, too. So, sorry to hear that, Simon. Hope that you get the, uh, the football removed soon and all goes well. Absolutely. That's all of our wishes from the APG. Um, Also, we talked about the uh, potential for an Ottawa meetup. Uh, Gubby had uh, was trying to organize something like that, and he said he has not heard a dicky bird regarding anyone who wants to get together. I may have to do uh, better recruiting uh, more APG listeners, more to follow. Just remember, there's not many people who live in Canada. It's you know, it's pretty quiet place. So that is true. Perhaps the three or four people that live near you and haven't heard about it. 
But as we mentioned, you'll have before, to go out and make friends with your neighbors and let them know about the APG <laughs> and then just organize a go. meetup. And yeah. 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 You have to find one with a computer or a phone or something like that. <laughs> Fast machine. Yeah. Telegraph. Um, Not sure. Anyways, I, I hate that. Um, I, I will be in uh, that sort of neck of the woods on the 17th. Two hours away. Two hours away, uh, Liz says. Uh, on October 17th, no, no, November 17th. Uh, just uh, about two weeks from today, I guess, um, in Montreal. And uh, so Gubby is planning on driving up or over or whichever direction it is. Down. Down, okay, uh, to Montreal. And uh, also um, I received an email today or yesterday uh, from another APG community member who lives in the area. And so I'm about to return that, reply to that email and let him know when I'm going to be there. And uh, anybody else who happens to live in that area, Montreal, uh, I guess we're planning uh, some sort of a meetup. And uh, so just stay tuned for updates on that. And let's see. Also, we have the uh, cover art from the last episode that we probably should talk about. So let me get that set up here. Okay. Now it is selected, and I do this. Okay, there it is. Wow, it's very colorful, which I like. Um, lots of popping colors. And There's just beautiful a lot going on there, and too. Yellow and that little... Lego cap, you know, with the mustache is well, so good. Tell us, uh, <laughs> Steph, what uh, what's going on there in this uh, photo, for those who are not... Well, you know, if you're There's... listening to the audio, you're probably seeing this on the uh, chapter marker image. There is a, and I don't have to listen to this episode because I was not here for it. So there's, I listened to some of it actually already. A pig with wings, there lungs with wings. There's a CRM, who's Captain Really Mad. <laughs> and F-O-Y me, he looks really um, distressed that he has to fly with Captain Really Mad. And they're in this nice <laughs> Well, when you uh, hear, when you listen aircraft. to the audio stuff uh, on the go around out, out of uh, Newark, you'll understand why. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have not heard that. I'll still listen yeah, to it. it's, it's good. It's a good And one. apparently Liz is a mechanic now. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, she does most of the fixing, doesn't she? It's true. It's very true. So yeah. flying lungs, pigs, and mad most. captains. And if anyone's trying to find the show number... I see. It's in the pig's very ring. It's, yeah, it's very pig's subtle. nose ring. I can't yeah. see my. No, you see, you have to. Wow. Up on the screen. Well, I don't He's know how to. He's getting really, really obscure with those. Okay. Oh, Never mind. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so for I, making I, it I very easy for people to see. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be hidden away. It's it's a oh. game. It's like ah. fine. Where's it Wally? Yeah. It's it became a game, but you didn't really tell anyone that it was a game. Just no, I hadn't. Liz and I knew it was a game. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Neil says that's an She acid keeps trick. going, uh, I can't find it this week, and that's because I've usually forgotten to put it in somewhere. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, yes. I've seen those uh, those back and forth conversations between the two of you. And then, well, you need to put your glasses on, Liz. And then come to find <laughs> out that uh, it wasn't the fact that it she wasn't didn't there have her glasses on. It just they, it wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah, cruel of absolutely. you. Absolutely. 
know. Uh, yes, I, I could do with a slightly simpler um, title next time, please. Well, I didn't come up with that title. I know. I don't know who did actually, but yeah, that's hard work. That's, you know, those lungs are made up with uh, all sorts of input. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about three layers just to make a realistic-looking lung. Yeah, well, it's a very realistic, uh, shiny lung. Check it out, folks, um, to see the beautiful artwork that uh, Captain Anderson. Well, it's made of fillet steak, most of it. Aside from being outside of someone's body. body. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, seriously, it's got a sheen of fillet steak on it. That's why it looks nice (laughs) and shiny and meaty. Mm. Yum, yum, yum. Mm. All right. Well, speaking of food and drink, it's coffee fun. It is now time for us to head over to the coffee fun corner. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. All right, the coffee fun. Oh, I sing here. Coffee, I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Mm-hmm. That sounds great, Liz, with all the latency. <laughs> Good. Glad you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. All right. A uh, couple of different ways that you can contribute to the coffee fund, and that is, let's talk about the first one. It's the coffee fund classic method, and uh, your way to do a one-off or recurring contribution to the show and since the last one randy ackerman uh, contributed his recurring con- contribution and fred sampson from the cia um, also sent us a very generous contribution to help i think offset some of the costs of episode 500 in the celebration and we also have another way that you can become members of the coffee fund cadre or the coffee bar club and that is via Patreon, patreon.com, and you can, let's see, pledge a certain amount per episode, and since the last episode, we have a couple who have taken us up on that, a new producer, Bradley Link, and a new executive producer, Nick Arander, or Arander, I'm not sure the pronunciation of that, Nick, sorry, and so if you want to join these cool cats, uh, head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee, you'll be glad you did. And we will, too. Yeah, way too much going on here. This keynote thing is probably not a good idea. <laughs> I need somebody pushing buttons. I'm happy to do it. Let me push your buttons. Oh, I know you are. I know you are. Um, all right. Yeah, quit pushing my button. <laughs> Okay, this is feedback from Ben down under. Qantas's longest commercial flight, and he said, as a bit of extra information about the uh, Sierra Alpha Echo Zulu to Yankee Papa Delta November flight, with some info about our pol- polar ops. Regards, Ben from Australia. Um, So, and that was somewhere in Argentina, right? The SAE, Buenos Aires. Okay. I don't recognize the, uh, to Darwin. Thank you, Liz. Okay. Well, let's uh, listen to Ben's feedback. 
Hi, Happy G-Crew. Ben from Australia here with a bit extra about the Qantas flight from Buenos Aires to Darwin. The EDTO, Extended Diversion Time Operations Port, used for the flight were SAEZ, Buenos Aires, SCCI, Punta Arenas in Chile, NZCH, Christchurch in New Zealand, and Melbourne and Alice Springs in Australia. The flight was operated under EDTO 330, with the longest one engine in operative diversion time being a point south 74.40.3, west 145.25.4, 320 minutes from SCCI. The same point also represented the longest all-engine divert time to Christchurch of 275 minutes, with the max approved cargo fire suppression divert time being 285 minutes. Long time if you ask me. The further south they got was just shy of 75 degrees, which is the company limit for Antarctic polar operations uh, apart from sightseeing flights. And they were over the edge of the continent for part of the flight, which was all in daylight, so the views would have been absolutely spectacular, I'm sure. Regarding Antarctic landing areas from our company documentation, there are no landing sites in the Antarctic region that have been assessed as usable for company operations and the existing Antarctic landing areas are only designed to support operations by suitably equipped aircraft on a very limited seasonal basis. With uh, There are no facilities that are capable of sustaining large groups of personnel, such as uh, in the case of a 787. The largest prepared Antarctic landing areas capable of accepting wheeled aircraft are the ice runways located at McMurdo Station or Casey Base. The two landing areas at McMurdo, being the Ice Runway and Phoenix Airfield, were reasonably close to the flight route, while Casey Base was quite some distance away. And at the bottom of this section in the manual, a little note there saying, use of Antarctic landing areas by company aircraft must be regarded as extremely hazardous and should only be contemplated as an alternative to ditching. Scary stuff. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for all the good work. Keep the blue side up and see you later. That does not sound very promising, that last warning <laughs> regarding... No, no you know. that's, that's a long way between diversions, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very long. scary stuff. It is scary stuff. But we had talked about, um, when we first talked about this flight, how that didn't seem on a flat projection that that would have been the shortest routing, but now that you see it in the three-dimensional uh, spherical uh, mode and you're great basically circle. looking yeah the great circle uh, you're looking at the globe from underneath i guess if we make north up and or top and south bottom so we're below the sphere looking upward at antarctica and uh off to the left uh, australia the australian continent and then off to the right the south american continent and uh, make it puts it all in perspective and we can see now why it was such a long flight Mm, absolutely very cool thanks for that extra information ben that's awesome yeah always interesting to hear all the planning things that go into it yeah more than people realize a lot more than just uh fill her up and let's get kick the tires get the and get on out of <laughs> yep. here and fly over to australia <laughs> mm-hmm. i bet they didn't see very much traffic uh for most of the flight probably quiet on frequency pretty quiet yeah i'm sure yeah um, all right, we have some feedback here from Dave. Uh, jumper dumper problems. Take your screen off there. Oh yeah, thank you, uh, Liz. 
And you could do it if you'd like. Um, yeah, it, I just did that. Sorry. Oh, I you just realized I sure. Could okay. Um, okay. This feedback from Dave. Uh, his the title of his feedback: Jumper Dumper Problems. Hi all. Hope you're all keeping well. I've just seen this video on Twitter, which on the face of it looks quite scary. I was wondering if Dr. Steph could explain what may have caused it. Some comments are saying it might be a deliberate maneuver, but if so, it seems a bit sketchy. And then he gave us a link to a Twitter uh, post, and uh, this is Dave Lakeland. And now I'm going to go ahead and play this video, and I think I agree with Dave. It does look a little scary to me. So for those of you who are just listening to the audio podcast we're watching, uh, folks who are skydiving, and as they uh, exit the aircraft, um, you see the aircraft in the background basically start to kind of tumble and spin. Um, and it's actually not um, moving that far away from the jumpers. Um, no. <laughs> which is the scariest part of this to me. Um, and then it recovers into more almost wins level attitude, a little bit more roll action there. Um, one more jumper actually leaves the aircraft there at the very end. Um, and yeah, this is, um, it does look scary. Um, so this is not a deliberate maneuver. I will say that much to start. Um, but this uh, skydiving operation has happened in South Africa on the 14th of October. And the aircraft in question is a Beach uh, King Air C-90. Um, which is actually a pretty common jump aircraft in the skydiving world. Um, this aircraft has some unique flight characteristics that pilots who fly it are pretty well familiar with. One is some center of gravity um, considerations, and also the fact that if you are watching the video, you'll notice that the door is relatively small. Um, you'll notice that the uh, horizontal stabilizer is pretty low. Um, and in this particular um, jump run here. You have a lot of jumpers outside the door for a pretty long period of time. This is actually clipped a little bit, so you can't see how long it takes them to climb out and how many people are getting into position there. But there's actually six people outside of the door and another two or three, I believe, on the inside. Um, I think I have information later I th that will clarify I think clarify it was four jumpers four uh, inside. And, and the pilot. So five are still in the uh, airplane at this point. Yeah. Well, let's see. If you pause it right there, Pause. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight people in the air right there. So there were six people outside, two in the door, um, inside the aircraft that all left together in this particular uh, setup. And then there were still another four in the aircraft, I think. Five. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, four um, uh, plus the pilot, so five in the airplane. Uh, there were uh, actually, you know what it says. Uh, we'll get to some more information. I've got, I've got actual numbers on that. That's not quite correct, but I'm um, just going through what the the video is showing here. So um, I have not flown the King Air. Um, I know quite a few pilots who have flown it for skydiving operations, but um, just a little bit of background for those who aren't familiar. This is a multi-engine aircraft, um, and like I was saying, the um, not a, not a very long fuselage, um, and the tailplane, the the horizontal stabilizer, the elevator are, are rather low. So when you're setting up for jump run, you have to have um, flaps uh, set to a certain, um, I think it's, I forget what the settings are in the King Air, it's like 60% or something um, is the normal flap setting. And then um, 
you're going to have the power pulled back on the left engine because otherwise you're going to have, if you look at where the engine is and the nacelle and, and the prop, it's very close to the door, actually. So you're getting a lot of prop blast um, as the jumpers are trying to, to climb out. So you'll pull the, the power back on the left engine and leave some power in on the right side to maintain your attitude and um, uh, altitude. And you actually will have a little bit of a either. So most of the time you want a little bit of a nose down attitude because of how low the um, elevator is behind, right behind the door so that you don't have jumpers jumping up and hitting the, the back of the aircraft as they exit. So you need all of that in place as you're on jump run. And typically, um, at least in the aircraft I fly, you're going to be around 90 knots um, indicated airspeed. And I believe it's pretty similar for the, the King Air. Someone can tell me if I'm wrong, and it might be in the other information that I have here. Um, but what happens in the King Air, because it is so susceptible to changes in center of uh, changes in CG like that, if you have a lot of jumpers on the outside of the aircraft and they stay there for a long period of time, um, because of how you're set up there around 90, 95 knots, you're going to start to get a pitch up moment. Um, so you either need to add more and more power to that uh, left engine, um, or you need to limit the amount of jumpers that are outside at one time. They may not have known how many they should have or not have on, on the outside of the aircraft. Um, but if you, if they're out there for too long or, you know, you have too much weight on that side of the aircraft, uh, you're basically going to end up stalling the aircraft and it's going to go into that nose high attitude. And then you, because your, your, uh, power is back on that left side and you have a lot of, um, asymmetric controls going on to keep things flying straight, um, it's pretty easy to end up in a spin, which is what happened here. Wow. So. Did you read the, um, the, the, I guess they had a report from some of the jumpers and also uh, the pilot's perspective? And yeah. I, so this has been all over my uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds today, um, various groups that I'm in, and I've read through all of this. So I'll, I'll go through the um, videographer's perspective here first. And they've shared this because they want people to learn from this and, and not get themselves into the same situation here. So uh, da, 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 da. let's let's actually read the, um, the videographer's perspective here first. He said, we turned on to jump run overhead, spectacular cloud and sunset scenery. I think this was about six o'clock local in the evening. Um, the aircraft was trimmed for exit procedure, opened the door, began to climb out. Um, the skydiving team was fully focused on achieving correct position exit timing, which is, is pretty normal. Um, this task resulted in many of the skydivers missing the telltale signs of an imminent stall. Um, and I will say we, you know, at the drop zone where I, uh, jump and fly jumpers, we used to have a King Air and every year in our safety day, um, uh, meetings and, and on a semi-regular basis, especially for the King Air, it was emphasized, um, you know, that if you're doing a large group out of the King Air, you can only have so many jumpers on the outside of the aircraft. You have to exit in a timely fashion um, just because of some of these characteristics. And to know what some of those telltale characteristics are, if you feel the nose start to come up a little bit, if you feel any sort of slip, bank, uh, abnormal, you know, no longer straight and level, it's time to leave. You need to go. Um, so the videographer actually says, uh, let's see here. Telltale signs manifest for only a short period, so one has to be tuned into them to pick them up. Such incidents are extremely rare, meaning that more than 70% of this team had never experienced such an incident before, and therefore were not as familiar. 
um, from the videographer's exit position. So they were outside most tailward end of the jump line. He felt the plane slip once and then twice, after which he knew something was wrong, decided to let go of the now banking aircraft, and it all happened inside of a few seconds, which you can definitely see in the video. So those on the outside of the door and immediately inside of the door followed. Uh, nine folks, uh, nine jumpers initially in the sky and five skydivers still inside the aircraft. He says, the moment was surreal and I could not believe what I was seeing. Everything happened in slow motion. And I remember thinking, am I really seeing the plane spinning nose down next to us? After the spin, the aircraft started to veer underneath, but luckily did not make contact with any of the jumpers. Yeah, that was the most scary part of this video for me. Um, as the aircraft started to recover from the stall, uh, one further skydiver exited, leaving four skydivers and one pilot in the aircraft. After I was satisfied that the aircraft had recovered, um, it's a fascinating and unusual thing to see your jump aircraft below you in freefall. I searched the sky for my team and found them building the pre-planned formations in a safe and normal manner. So was the videographer. The, uh, the pilot um, gave their perspective as well. They said the aircraft was inspected and is undamaged. That's a good thing. The jump run procedure entails setting up flaps 60 to 80 and bringing the left engine uh, to flight idle. They also bring the left prop back to full course to minimize disking of the prop. Um, so as I was saying, that enables the jumpers to egress onto the outside step, which would otherwise be difficult due to uh, prop and thrust blast from the left engine. And there's also the added danger of the blast pushing jumpers into the left elevator. Power is kept on the right engine to maintain altitude during the jump run, which typically takes 60 seconds. A fair amount of right rudder is required to fly a straight line in this configuration, and the pilot is to maintain 95 to 90 knots. The stall and subsequent spin happened when we, we allowed too many jumpers on the outside step, causing an aft center of gravity and excessive blocking of the airflow over the left horizontal stabilizer. The nose then pitched up beyond the uh, controllability of the elevator. So basically, he, uh, you know, the pilot's giving full forward on the, the elevator, but hit the stop and did not have any more authority there to overcome that um, nose-high attitude. He says he anticipated the stall when he hit the elevator stop. Um, that's not a good feeling, I'm sure. Um, as the wing came over, I moved the right engine power and prop levers back to the flight idle position, thereby neutralizing the engine effect from uh, both engines, centralized the ailerons, and applied full right rudder, uh, which was already quite deep in at this point. The aircraft behaved very well. The recovery was surprisingly easy. Pulled out as gently as possible as I did not want to stress the airframe. There was some initial inst or additional instability when I pulled out of the dive and pushed the throttles forward to power up as one of the engines spooled up much quicker than the other and caused another asymmetrical moment. Uh, the flaps may have inadvertently helped to keep the airspeed low and the um, indicated airspeed showed 140 knots when he pulled out of the um, into the recovery. The incident was reported within 24 hours. The CAA investigated and visited their hangar. They were happy that the aircraft was operated and flown within its STC. And then they state, in the future, no more than five jumpers will be allowed on the outside step. So and they will also brief large formations to be wary of pitch moment of the nose of the aircraft and, so that they can better recognize that and hopefully uh, exit more quickly if that starts to happen. So I think all in all, a, a good... Um, summary of what we saw in that video. And um, yeah, these are these are things that we are well aware of and know can happen. And this is all about knowing the characteristics of the aircraft that you fly. Um, fortunately, the Otter and the uh, Caravan are not quite as sensitive in this regard, but you still have to be wary of this. On Sunday when I was flying, we had um, a load of jumpers. Uh, there were 12 jumpers and they were all leaving as one group. 
So that's something to be very aware of. You need to know how many people are planning to be outside the aircraft. Typically, I'll have more uh, carry more airspeed, um, have more of a nose down attitude after we reach um, the exit point, um, and and just make sure that they're not going to plan to put too many people on the outside of the aircraft. And then you also have to anticipate as everyone leaves. You know, you get that you have that pitch up moment, and then you have a very significant pitch down moment as everyone exits the aircraft as well. And you want to make that transition as smooth as possible. Wow. Nick looks Nick looks a Look, little um, concerned. It looked, it looked very scary to me. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, I, I would have thought you could have possibly, or uh, you know, there would be a little bit more leeway built in. Uh, obviously not because no, uh, it's he was hard. at the full forward stop of the. Uh, travel of the yeah, elevator which, there. which is why I'm going, you know, uh, leeway in that let's control this center of gravity a bit better because, uh, um, you know. Uh, so you want to know about those things. You know, jumpers should be aware of that, especially in yeah. especially in a King Air. Um, the Otter is much more forgiving, the Caravan much more forgiving as well, um, and it's not as critical. There's a lot yeah. of other things going on too that uh, are safety considerations and people really just need to be heads up if they're jumping and all jumps should involve a thorough safety brief beforehand. Now, I don't know how many how many of you guys have to do a spin in your aircraft to show that you can recover from it. So no, yeah. no, no because, spinning is not required. No, so no, no, because uh, so I'm I'm ninety. I mean, I'm certain that it's not an intentional or an approved maneuver in multi-engine aircraft. No. first of all, <laughs> so and, I'm going. <laughs> I'm going. I, I think he dealt with it con pretty well, considering. Although it looked like to me now, uh, a common problem with spinning is that having recovered from the spin during the the, the pullout, you're still at relatively low airspeed. It's very easy to go back into a stall and re-enter the spin mm. in the recovery, which to me, I mean, it might have been exacerbated by uh, an uneven power. Uh, power up of the engines but to me it looked like that might have what happened because when he started his pull-up he rolled onto his back and did two more revolutions and to me that airplane spinning again i'm sorry yeah, so I, I i quite understand what the pilot says it might well have been exacerbated when he uh, pushed the engines up one eight mm -hmm. one engine spilled up before the other yeah but uh, i think he could have um, perhaps been a little more gentle with his pullout i don't know let the airspeed yeah, increase sure. a bit he more. had the uh i don't know if he still had the flaps in at that point as well he had yeah it didn't look like he'd of... brought them in no, no. It, it looked like they were still out but mm -hmm. uh anyway scary stuff so uh, i yeah. think well handled because obviously he got the airplane back and it was undamaged which is brilliant and it didn't hit any skydivers on the way although yeah. when you're in a spin it's pretty much by luck because you can't yeah. exactly control where you're going yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, my other thought, though, was there were – so initially there were five other jumpers still in the aircraft. Those jumpers yeah. are not wearing their seatbelts at that point. Oh, no. They're going to be flying around. I, yeah. So hopefully everything yeah. – I mean, wow. no mention was made of anything untoward happening there, but – I said like the airplane was thankfully, wasn't okay. but they didn't say anything about the, about the, the people jumpers on the side. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I thought the bloke that secured in the, there. Yeah. I think the bloke that jumped out uh, after the initial spin uh, was quite. He was probably like, I've had drive. enough. That's, that's, yes. that's honestly probably what the thought was in his head. I've had enough. I'm out of this airplane. Goodbye. Like, I'm gone. Yeah. 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 This I is can't like say that I blame him there. I yeah. Like being in a um, washing machine. Yes. Yeah. I, I've read some comments from from people I know who have a lot of King Air time flying jumpers and um this consensus seems to be yes, too many on the too many on the outside of the aircraft for too long, cause the aircraft to slow down below 
uh, stall angle attack. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, that, um, you know, you talk about the fact that they don't do these kind of maneuvers in that kind of an airplane because they're really not certified to do that. Uh, this is what we call in the simulator world uh, a first look maneuver. Mm. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you need to be you need to be aware that these things can happen if you're you know conducting these types of operations, and you need to have rehearsed in your mind what you're going to do if it does happen. You know, the very unlikely and hopefully never uh, chance that it does. But if it does, what are your actions going to be? And those need to be, um, you know, yeah, enacted. Uh, Mr. Boxes thinks balloons are safe for jumping. Balloons well, are I safe. That's the only way I'm ever getting in a balloon is with a rig on my Yeah, <laughs> jumping out of a balloon is probably a very sensible thing to do, but actually they're not because when you jump out of an airplane, that forward speed, uh, is, if you're going to deploy your parachute, helps the parachute for it to deploy. I think the minimum height for jumping out of a static balloon is something like 800 feet because it takes a long time. For your parachute to uh, deploy properly, well, you don't. Well, jumping out of a balloon. So jumping out of a you, balloon, you guys are a lot are free, of different you, considerations. You guys are free falling out of there, so it doesn't make much difference, does it? So it's all about relative wind and airflow, yeah. right? So when you jump out of a balloon, there's initially no relative wind or airflow. So that's a consideration just for having your body in a stable position. Um, and yes, it does affect how the parachute opens uh, if you were to deploy in basically dead air like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. Interesting stuff. Uh, for those who are listening to the audio podcast, please make sure that you check out the show notes or the link. Yeah, there. it's quite dramatic, isn't it? In yeah, video, it is amazing. Very, very dramatic um, video. And I'm glad uh, everyone is okay. Yeah, I'm glad that the airplane Absolutely. didn't hit uh, one of the jumpers. All right, moving on. Uh, Dave has an ETOPS question. A uh, quick question about ETOPS, unless you ask Rick. Well, it'd be, still be a quick question. It just wouldn't be a quick answer. Um, <laughs> if you're flying over the ocean and lose an engine, you can make it to an alternate airport, right? But what if you lose cabin pressure during the failure, like uh, Southwest 1380? Does flight planning allow enough fuel to reach an alternate on one engine at flight level 100, 10,000 feet, with the extra drag of a damaged engine? And again, that's from Dave Ellison. Um, uh, yes, the answer is yes. And in my company, um, we, we got the added bonus in that they assumed your descent was immediate, like you went down in a lift down at 10,000 feet and then cruised along. So they calculated your fuel consumption at flight level 100 from the point at which you had the problem, whereas in reality you're going to go forward I don't know, 20, 30 miles. So you'd have that extra distance. So, um, yes, you would get there with bare minimum of fuel uh, if it was right on the edge. Um, but generally speaking, uh, we carried a bit of extra fuel if ever we were concerned about ETOPS diversion points. But, yeah, I mean, you have to think of the situation. Normally, you don't account for dual emergencies when you're – considering performance you know you, you you assume you'll only have one emergency at a time but um of course in an aircraft twin engine airplane it's quite likely that you could have dispatched with one pack um uh, and that was being fed by one engine your remaining pack and then that engine might fail in which case you've got no packs at all no pressurization at all so you still got a serviceable engine 
uh, but there's no way to pr- use the air from that to pressurize the aircraft because of an unserviceability, uh, in which case that engine loss brings about a loss of pressurization at the same time. So, uh, yes, you have to consider that when you're doing ETOPS, and that's uh, part of the calculation uh, that flight planning do, and they give you all the points at which you have, um, you know, you, you've reached your point where you can divert with this, that, and the other, or you can't divert with this, that, and the other. So they they, they take those into account. Good stuff. Good. Great question. And there's not a, a huge amount of uh, drag unless your engine's seized. If it's seized, it's like a, a flat plate. But if it's still windmilling, uh, you know, there's not an enormous amount of uh, extra fuel consumption, 10 15% perhaps. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for your question, Dave. And thanks for that great answer, Nick. Um, moving on to Ethan. Uh, hope all is well. You guys continue to offer premium office entertainment throughout my day. <laughs> uh, let's see. There, uh, This is a nice video about all the paperwork involved with actually getting airborne. Granted, this video is several years old, and EFBs have certainly changed this concept. Well, you'd think so. Uh, my question to you is what paperwork is involved these days with a typical flight? Is everything on your EFB, or do you get paper uh, flight plans, load sheets, etc.? Are paper maps and navigational references still required? I remember the old days when the gate agent would hand off a pile of paper to the cockpit crew before closing the door. Is this still the case, or a thing of the past? Uh, stay safe. All the best to you and the APG community. Talk soon. Ethan Kurtzman in Marl- Marlboro, Connecticut. Um, I'll, uh, in a moment, I'll play the uh, a little bit of the video. It's a, it's quite a long video, uh, but it's good. It's our, our favorite. Well, at this point, he wasn't a captain, uh, but uh, many people remember uh, this gentleman in the Cockpit Chronicles video of him. Uh, a little saddened by the fact that he was leaving the uh, MD-80 series airplane to go fly something else. Uh, this is um, when he was a first officer uh, on a wide-body aircraft on a long international flight. And uh, so let's, before we answer your question, I'll play a little bit of the video. What's up? Okay. Okay, sounds good. Uh, notice it has a bar going across. You know, it, it looks. It you're only on, sh- man. You're on. Okay, here we go. All right. So, on the uh, any flight going across the Atlantic, there's a ridiculous amount of paperwork uh, required. So we'll run through that just real quickly. We get this uh, folder, which is uh, handy. It's got a lot of inf- information in it, some facts, uh, airport codes, and that kind of stuff. Of course, we got the uh, the flight plan. That's always good to have. In fact, they give you two of them. One has to be signed and left here. And it shows the turbulence uh, along the flight, how high we're going to go, how fast we're going to go, uh, how much fuel we need, that kind of stuff. Uh, here's the second copy. We've got a uh, map uh, that's uh, really pretty. They even draw, actually, we usually do the drawing, um, the route of flight. Today we're going to go really, really close to uh, Greenland. And uh, we have to plot our course on that to make sure we're not straying off course. We also have what's called a track message. This tells us we're on track Charlie which has uh, all these different waypoints on it, and uh, we need to be on that. These are all the different tracks, Alpha through Golf. Uh, and uh, just the fuel and the time at each waypoint that we'll be at. This is our um, takeoff data. It shows- 
Anyway, as you can see, you get the idea that there is a lot of paperwork. He's got a folder full of a big stack of papers. And uh, by the way, if you're only listening to the audio, the, all that noise is because they're in the cockpit of this airplane somewhere in flight. So you have a lot of that air noise and pressurization noise going on. Uh, looks to me I like... taken off yet. Um, I, about I, I could tell by the noise. Oh, I'm sorry. You said, Liz, that they're, they haven't taken off yet? Isn't that on the ground if you look out the window? I can well, see I don't clouds. Know. Is that? It looks uh, like clouds to me. It looks like clouds. It looks like it could be something just on the ground. Or it could be something yeah, on the ground. I thought it was on the ground. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It could be either. Uh, you, you, you be the judge, dear listener. Uh, watch the video. Wait. Hold on. Um, but I just assumed that they were in flight because of all that noise. It just sounds like the in-flight Play, play just a little bit more. I want to look out the window Okay. The, um, the let me play a little bit more here. Was, uh, the amount of power we're going to need on the various runways. Yeah, no, nothing the outside the window settings. moves. So for 9 and 2-7 okay. here in London, this is what we're going to well, need. Well, then, then I guess they're on the ground. It sure is noisy in that cockpit on the ground. I guess maybe the air wow, conditioning yeah. system is really noisy. That would drive me mad. Yeah. Okay, well. Or it's a really crappy camera an audio uh, setup that's possible too i guess uh but um it, it certainly sounded to me uh, like they were in flight so my apologies if they're not but anyway uh we'll have a link to that uh, video in the show notes um, but to answer your question you know you'd think that and i think it depends on the airline the airline for which i fly um still uh, requires that we have uh some paper uh, products. We have um, a flight plan. A paper, paper flight plan is required. Um, a uh, uh, the weather uh, forecast and you know current and, and forecast weather, NOTAMs that kind of stuff is all required uh, in paper format, and that's the official uh, flight plan. Even though we get, we can get. We're not required to, but most of us do get the electronic flight plan on our EFB and probably for most of us, or at least me anyway, the reason why I like to get the electronic is that once I have the electronic flight plan, I can click a button that says load it into my, uh, my JEPS flight deck pro and it, and does all that stuff. So I don't have to manually enter all that stuff. Um, and then also we have a button now that goes to our flight weather viewer, which is our, our, uh, turbulence reporting, weather reporting kind of app. That shows our route of flight and weather along the route and turbulence and all that kind of stuff. And now it's just a matter of pushing a button that, and it just automatically loads that in, whereas we had to put all that information in manually before as well. So that's it's because I'm lazy, basically, the reason why I get the electronic flight plan. But, um, you know, there, there are times when, like, the printer is not working at the gate. And I want to say, well, no problem, because I'm just going to use the flight plan that I have on my EFB. But legally... I can't. I have to have a paper flight plan as of now. Now, my airline was saying that by now we would not have had that requirement, and it has something to do with getting approval from the FAA for our airline. Uh, but something obviously has happened that uh, has prevented, you know, doing, you know, getting or making that happen. And so um, we're still required to have the, the paper stuff. Good comment from Dale. Dale says, just make sure you have 5G switched off on your EFB. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Especially if you're doing a low-vis approach. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the 
like the manuals that we uh, used to have to carry with us, they're all electronic now um, with um, very few exceptions. The logbook we obviously is still a physical thing that we have to keep with us. Uh, for a while there, there were a couple of the maintenance manuals that still required to be on board the aircraft, but then I guess now we've gotten the sign-off from the FAA and we don't have to have those. Or Again, all that information, all those manuals are on our electronic flight bag. Um, so, you know, there's really no reason for us to have the paper, in my opinion, but it's still a requirement at my airline. Now, you might fly for an airline that does not have that legal requirement anymore. And I think that's the direction we're all going uh, in the future here. But that um, that's the deal. Now, I don't fly international yeah. for Acme, so I don't know if they still require to have those plotting um, paper plotting maps. I bet they do. And they probably will for some time to come, I would guess. Nick? I don't think we use them anymore when I, when okay. I was with the company. Oh, okay. So how do you do the plotting? Do you do, you do it? We didn't. Oh, okay. I mean, I you've got you've, you're, the, it used to be a bit silly, really, because you're taking the information to draw the cross on the map from the same instruments, the same inertial reference system, and everything else that's guiding the airplane. So, if if the if your navigation equipment is making a mistake, your your cross your paper is also this, making a mistake. Yeah, you'll mm -hmm. put the cross in the same place as the airplane thinks it is anyway. So, it it was everyone thought it was a bit of a meaningless. Um, task i wonder if it has something to do with the fact that it keeps uh the pilots engaged with what's really happening with the airplane <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> to make us do a physical for. okay <laughs> <laughs> for the record i don't use any that's paper fine dining's for yeah go ahead uh what'd you say sure. liz that's what the I'm, fine dining is for i'm sorry what i meant to say was what did you say steph oh i don't use any paper in my flight planning there you go yeah, that's obviously the way we're all going. And some of us, some of our outfits have been more reluctant than others, more conservative. Actually, I take I guess. it back. We do keep track of how many jumpers per load that we fly on paper, along with um, just keeping track of when we get fuel and when we need fuel again. Okay. But that does happen. 99% of it is non paper, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. Um, Gubby. We mentioned him earlier uh, uh, up there in uh, Ottawa. Uh, he says, and apropos. He's in the chat room tonight. And he has, yes. Apropos bugs in the cockpit. Whilst on short finals to Camp Bastion in Afghanistan at night on NVG, night vision goggles, just in case the acronym wasn't obvious, in my heavy old C 17. A moth flew out of the glare shield and went straight up my nose. <laughs> it wriggled <laughs> like heck. I couldn't hand over the control at 100 feet AGL. So I carried on. The landing was positive, to say the least. <laughs> I had to sneeze repeatedly to get the little fecker out. And I did say fecker. Oh. <laughs> and that's what he spelled. I love it. I wow. Love it. There's a song about that, except it's a bird of paradise. <clears throat> Yeah. So may the bird of paradise fly up, up your nose. May an elephant trample on your toes. It goes on. Nick, you never cease to amaze me with your encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of songs that I, I have never that, heard of. Liz, oh, okay. I should tell you, and if you're listening to the audio podcast, you hear Liz also singing along with that same song. <laughs> ah, <okay. laughs> 
doctor. I'm not. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in your camp, uh, Steph. I, what? What are they talking about? Can we go um, back to the last item? Captain Al has a comment there. Oh, back to the last item. Liz says Captain Al has a comment. The main reason for MNPS plotting is gross error check of FMS misprogramming. So, I don't know. What do you think about well, that? Well, we still used to do the um, uh, double check of uh, track distance, track distance checks every time we pulled over. So that should pick that up, drawing us a thing on a map for ten minutes. All right. Anyway, yes, you're quite right, Al. Pointless exercise, but make <laughs> we have different opinions about that, I guess. All right. Well, you know what? We're just about that time of the show where we do the old pilot's plane tale. And this week's installment is entitled How the Poppy Grew. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales. How the Poppy Grew. About this time of the year, I like to do a tale that turns our minds to those who gave their lives for their countries in the many conflicts that have plagued the world. In the past, tales such as In Flanders Fields and Lest We Forget, I've talked about the poppy used as a symbol of remembrance in many countries and the poem penned by the Canadian doctor Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, as he tended the appallingly injured soldiers and pilots of the First World War. In particular, the poem reflects his sadness at burying a close friend, whose body was nearly obliterated by an enemy artillery shell. John would himself die later, from pneumonia and meningitis, probably brought on by the long hours he worked and the conditions he lived under, even as a senior doctor, in the vast tented hospital where he served at Wimaru. James McConnell was an American pilot who had volunteered to fight in the war and was flying with the French Escadrille Lafayette. His vivid description gives us some idea of the destroyed landscape below him as he flew over the 1916 battlefield of Verdun. He describes the front line as a brown belt, a strip of murdered nature. Immediately east and north of Verdun, there lies a broad brown band. Peaceful fields and farms and villages adorned that landscape a few months ago when there was no Battle of Verdun. Now there's only that sinister brown belt, a strip of murdered nature. It seems to belong to another world. Every sign of humanity has been swept away. The woods and roads have vanished like chalk wiped from a blackboard. Of the villages, nothing remains but gray smears where stone walls have tumbled together. On the brown band, the indentations are so closely interlocked that they blend into a confused mass of troubled earth. Of the trenches, only broken, half-obliterated links are visible. There was a gap in my story, however, that I would now like to close. The gap that transformed the sad words of John McRae's poem 
into the adoption of the poppy as a representation of remembrance for the fallen amongst such a large part of the English-speaking world and beyond. I realise that the red poppy that I will wear from now until after our Remembrance Day on the 11th of November isn't a common sight in the United States of America, but it wasn't always that way. Indeed, we can thank a fine American lady of Walton County in Georgia for lighting the spark that grew into a fire in the hearts of so many who have served or been affected by loss from war, even if that fire is seen in different ways amongst our American friends over the ocean. The lady in question was Moina Bell Michael, born back in 1869 in the town of Good Hope. Part of a large family, her father was a Confederate veteran of the American Civil War and related to General Francis Marion. On her mother's side, she came from the Wise family of Virginia State Governors, and although she hailed from one of the wealthy cotton plantation owners, the South had experienced economic problems with low cotton prices and high taxes. Well educated, at the age of only 15, she became a teacher in Monroe, and with the plantation gone, for a while she became the sole breadwinner for the family. She was, though, determined to continue her learning and eventually studied at the Columbia University in New York. She was in Germany when the First World War broke out in 1914, and she travelled to Rome and then back to the USA, but not before assisting around 12,000 fellow Americans seek passage back across the Atlantic. She helped to set up an American committee to work with the embassy in Rome to help fellow countrymen stranded by the conflict to gain passage home. She herself would return later on the Cunard line ship Carpathia, a ship that would become famous for coming to the rescue of survivors from the Titanic and for being torpedoed and sunk by a German U-boat in 1918. Safely back in the United States, by the time the US had joined the First World War, She'd become a professor, teaching at the University of Georgia, but she took a leave of absence to assist in the training of overseas Young Women's Christian Association war workers. It was while she was engaged in her war work that she first heard the poem In Flanders Fields. I've already told this story in detail, but some things are worth repeating. In Flanders Field continued McRae's preoccupation with death and how it represents the transition between the struggle for life and the peace that follows. It is written from the point of view of the dead and speaks of their sacrifice as well as their command from beyond the grave for the living to press on. As with many of the most popular works from the First World War, it was written early in the conflict before the romanticism of that dreadful war had turned into bitterness and disillusion for soldiers and civilians alike. When the poem was published, McRae received many letters and telegrams praising his work, and it was republished throughout the world, becoming synonymous with the sacrifice of those who had died. 
It was translated into numerous languages, so many that Macrae himself quipped, It only needs Chinese now, surely. Its appeal was nearly universal. Soldiers took encouragement from it, as a statement of their duty to those who died, whilst people on the home front viewed it as defining the cause for which their brothers, sons and fathers were fighting. Back in New York, Moyna Michael was in the gloomy place in Hamilton Hall called Germot Room, and was taking part in a YWCA conference. A young soldier had placed a journal on her desk, and when she found time to read it, she discovered a marked page which carried two of Macrae's poems, including In Flanders Fields. She read the poem many times. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow Between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. And in a moment of intense resolve, she pledged, in the words of the poem, to keep the faith. She turned to the back of a used yellow envelope and hastily penned her pledge to all who had died and to always wear a red poppy as a sign of remembrance and as an emblem of her pledge. Oh, you who sleep in Flanders' fields, sleep sweet to rise anew. We caught the torch you threw, and holding high we keep the faith with all who died. We cherish too the poppy red that grows on fields where valour led. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never dies, but lends a lustre to the red of the flower that blooms above the dead in Flanders' fields. And now the torch and poppy red we wear in honour of our dead. Fear not that ye have died for naught, we'll teach the lesson that ye wrought in Flanders' fields. She searched New York for red poppies and eventually returned with a large one for a vase on her desk and small ones, like the four-petaled one that now adorned her collar. Earlier, she had met some soldiers who came by and she had passed on Macrae's poem to them. Now they returned and begged for poppies to wear until she had no more. 
After the war, Moina was back in university teaching a class of disabled servicemen, when she realized that there was a great need for support for such men, and she decided to pursue the idea of selling silk poppies as a means of raising funds for disabled veterans. In 1921, her efforts resulted in the poppy being adopted as a symbol of remembrance by the Georgia's branch of the American Legion, its auxiliary, and soon after, the National American Legion. Her efforts didn't go unnoticed across the Atlantic, and the French teacher, Madame Anna Guerin, a well-known touring lecturer and fundraiser who split her time during the First World War between the United States of America and France, had come to the same idea, and their combined efforts introduced the poppy to many nations. Anna returned to France determined to sell poppies, to raise money for war orphans, and in 1921 sent poppy sellers to London ahead of Armistice Day, which caught the attention of Field Marshal Douglas Haig, one of the founders of the Royal British Legion. Haig supported and encouraged the sale of poppies throughout the British Empire, and to this day, in many of the Commonwealth nations, the symbol of the poppy still flourishes. In 1922, the Disabled Society, a charity established by Major George Howson, MC, and Major Jack Cohen, both campaigners for disabled servicemen, with a generous grant from the British Legion, acquired an old collar factory on the Old Kent Road and turned it into the first poppy factory. When Howson wrote to his parents, he said, I do not think this will be a great success, but it's worth trying. I consider the attempt ought to be made if only to give the disabled their chance. Soon he was employing 50 disabled veterans, and they were soon making poppies by the million. When the Prince of Wales toured the place in 1924, it was the year that they made 27 million poppies within two months, every poppy assembled by hand. The old place became too small, so they moved to a disused brewery in Richmond, Surrey, with room to house the workforce and their families on adjacent land. To this day, the factory employs disabled veterans and disabled dependents of ex-service personnel. They employ hundreds of men and women with health conditions and impairment. The Poppy Factory also provides teams of regional employment consultants to work with veterans in their communities to provide career guidance, CV advice, interview coaching, opportunities with local employers and information about funding and training resources. In Scotland, there's an equivalent charity known as Lady Haig's Poppy Factory. Nowadays, the wearing of the poppy in the United States is not common. The 11th of November is Veterans Day, a name that superseded Armistice Day to encompass more than just the First World War. It's a holiday which gives everyone a chance to honour all veterans. It's a celebration to reward them for their patriotism, love of country, 
and willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good. Although the poppy isn't widely seen as a symbol, it's still recognised by the American Legion and worn by many members on National Poppy Day, the Friday before Memorial Day, towards the end of May. The Legion encourages anyone to honour the country's fallen by wearing a red poppy and to donate to support the American Legion's fine works. In addition, the VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars organisation, promotes the wearing of a buddy poppy to show support for the veterans of wars who fought on foreign soil. In Britain and many Commonwealth countries, support for the wearing of a poppy for remembrance is almost universal, and the generous donations that are made to the Royal British Legion go a long way to assisting those who have served and are in need. This culminates in the annual Festival of Remembrance in the Royal Albert Hall on the Sunday before Remembrance Sunday, when current military units display, choral works are performed and representatives of many uniformed organisations and worthy groups such as bereaved wives parade in the heart of the hall. During the final service, in absolute silence, a multitude of poppy petals gently descend from above to settle on the shoulders of those below, to represent the millions of fallen from all British conflicts. On Remembrance Sunday itself, in every city, town and village, representatives will assemble at 11 o'clock to lay poppy wreaths and pay their respects to the fallen of all wars. But what of Moina Bell Michael? She became known as the Poppy Lady for her humanitarian efforts and would receive numerous worthy medals and awards during her lifetime. She would become a daughter of the American Revolution and the United Daughters of the Confederacy. She was named a distinguished citizen of Georgia and a marble bust of her placed in the rotunda of the state capital in Atlanta, Georgia. A Second World War Liberty ship was named after her and the US Post Office produced a commemorative stamp to honor her. In 1999, Moina was commended by the Organization of Georgia Women of Achievement in recognition of her work to create the poppy as a symbol of remembrance and, should you drive the highway number 79 between Athens and Monroe, you will be traveling on the Moina Michael Highway. How about that, Georgia? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, and there in Atlanta, you can go and see her bust. Well, okay. I look forward to that. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you I'm sure exciting. you must yeah, I'm sure you must have been to your rotunda at some point. <laughs> wait, wait, rotunda bust? Yeah. In, like yeah. at the state uh, her bust. Well, I know, I know. I'm, I'm sorry. Of, a rot a rotunda, I'm thinking. Okay, never mind. Um, yes, I understand what you're saying. Uh-huh. Good man, good man. Okay. Yes. 
but uh, it came as a surprise to me to discover this fine lady uh, was the one that made the link between the poppy and using it as a symbol for charity, uh, good works. So great, good to, good for her. And, uh, you know, she started off a, a fantastic uh, movement, really, that um, has allowed um, the charities around the world to support their um, veterans, um, you know, in many, many ways. So it's, it's great. There was a voice I heard in there that sounded a little bit familiar to me. Uh, yes, of course. Whenever I'm in dire need of a really fine set of pipes uh, for something meaningful, particularly, uh, Greg Willits is my go-to man. And he does this uh, for the show um, for, for no payment whatsoever. So I always love giving him a little plug if I can. So he is a, mm. a, a fine voiceover artist, can do a multitude of uh, accents. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for someone to uh, give some voiceover work, you can go to no better man than uh, Greg Willits at uh, gregwillits.com. Friend of the show. Certain and a fr- of the fr- personal friend of mine. He is great. Spend- uh, so uh, how would you spell his surname then? Willits. W-I-L-L-E-T-S. There you go. GregWillits.com. I think. Or is it W-I-L-L-I-T-S? <laughs> Darn it. Hey, Greg, in the show notes. Let these friends of yours Here, know let me look it up on my contact list. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not really sure. He's a sure. close friend. Well, he is oh. a close friend. I just don't spell his name very often. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, it's G-R-E-G. <laughs> okay. Oh, hey, That's I good. just had a message to let you know, uh, to remind you to thank Greg. So Excellent. Who? Thanks. I don't know who sent that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's why I mentioned it to begin with. <laughs> Very kind of you. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. It's W-I-L-L-I-T-S. Greg ah, Willits. I'm glad we got that sorted. Yeah. Uh, Me too. I think we've given Greg quite a sufficient plug now. Oh, yeah, we should have gone with Mike right away, he, the uh, yeah, mayor Mike, of Mike SQPN Mike and uh, APG. <laughs> yes, he is. All right. Uh, Greg, so Greg got- has helped me out with so many, and I, I always hark back to uh, his reading of the uh, diary of a American uh, airman uh, pilot who walked 80 miles across the Sahara Desert and died, and they found his diary afterwards. And Greg did such a... Oh, a heart-rending reading of his diary entries over that awful few days, uh, you know, tears to my eyes. He's a very clever chap and marvellous uh, actor. Mm-hmm. He is a very talented person. Also a uh, long-time podcaster. Um, he is also the um, an author of many books and uh, is a very smart man, a very creative man. Uh, an artist and all kind of, all that kind of stuff. But uh, his he and his wife do and have been doing for quite some time a wonderful podcast called Adventures in Imperfect Living. And uh, anyway, so check out. Yeah, how he finds the time to help me know. out on my little uh, tales, I do not know. But thanks, He's just Frank. a very efficient, productive worker. For sure. And by the way, I didn't use the last one because it was a little audio glitch. I used the one before, which was great. Oh, okay. I don't know what that means, but thank you. It was a code. Okay. Um, Let's continue on with some more feedback here. Uh, Item number seven, Jim writes in and says, 
Given your affinity for beer, I thought this was the perfect kind of thing to have around while recording. And it's a link to a YouTube video. So you know what? Honestly, I haven't even watched this video. So let's see how it goes. Cat's Paw Customs, the BFB Beer Boom Build. Cause money. This is but why. All right, hopefully I can make this make some sense. This airplane is a KC-10 extender. Its main mission is to refuel other airplanes while flying. For many types of aircraft, the KC-10 does this by using its flying boom. The extender can transfer thousands of pounds of jet fuel very fast using this flying boom. But the boom that I built, instead of dispensing jet fuel, will dispense beer. <laughs> Oddly, this is not my first beer boom. Once made a replica boom from a similar type aircraft, a KC-135. I once even made a six-foot model rotodome like that on an E3 AWACS. It really rotated, did, too. Did that so I guess the why is these types of things are so. used as massive displays or decorations for Air Force Squadron heritage rooms or at awards banquets. The people that commissioned this boom wanted to hang it from their ceiling in their squadron bar. I have to let you know before we get into the build that I did not do this from a plan. I had to work off of pictures because I've never worked on KC-10 aircraft myself. I pretty much made the entire thing up as I went along. And it goes through part one. The first part that I built the was the fuel tube. The fuel tube. This is PVC the piece pipe. that on the real airplane would extend out of the boom and then make contact with the receiver aircraft. On my boom, it will extend out and have a beer faucet at the end of it. Okay, um, as I said, this is the we're we're watching this together for the first time, and I'll if you want to watch the rest of it, that was only like maybe ten percent, not even ten percent. A very the, very small sample. A of very small sample. Yes, yeah. comes together. Just a although sip. at the very beginning you can see what appears to be the finished product there, and just I have to sip. say it's um, mm -hmm. yeah very we, impressive. We could definitely use that for. Especially like live podcast recordings, like yeah. the in-person ones and special events. So it has yeah, a I'm, I'm, whether you'd need a full-size one. Hey, I mean, because most rooms in your house wouldn't be big enough to hold this thing. Well, I think you could probably <laughs> scale it appropriately. Yeah, you know? I, that's what I think would mm -hmm. be appropriate. But it would be nice if it actually extended out, then offered you the tap. That would be perfect. Well, see, I, can you imagine that? I, I fast forwarded to toward the end there where I can see the, the beer faucet, uh, the beer tap at the end of it. Let me uh, hit play, see what happens. I hope here. you enjoyed watching the construction. Oh, I was hoping that it was going to be in use. Turn points, less the okay. No, I, I don't remember seeing uh, one of him actually pouring a beer out oh. of it. So. Well, how do we so know it works? How do we know it really works? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I couldn't see the point of putting a beer tap on the end if it didn't. Because <laughs> you get a lot of very disappointed drinkers. Yes. Well, I agree with Jim. I think that all of us should have one of these beer boom, beer dispensing refueling booms at hand while we record these podcasts each week. Well, I, I agree. But I personally would like one like a, one of those traditional uh, big British beer mm -hmm. pumps. Yeah, but I'd like oil. a... Um, yeah, I'd like a phantom stick top instead of the oh, the, cool. the pump handle. That would be nice. It would. Anyone know how to make one of those? <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there listening does. This, this guy probably does. 
whoever yeah, that video totally. title. from something again. Yeah, make, yeah, it invented, right, okay. make it up as you go along. All right, moving on. Uh, number eight, Liz. Yep. All right, Joe. Uh, so this is Joe from O'Hare. Oh, Joe, uh, air traffic control O'Hare, uh, or no, that's a different guy. Um, checking in with my third ever feedback, which seemingly never contained much substance for decent conversation. Uh, I came across this article from one mile at a time, which includes yet another interaction between ATC and a 380 crew on the ground in, uh, Yankee Yankee Zulu, or we also know it as Pearson international in Toronto. I'm sure you all have probably come across this already. However, I found the back and forth to be entertaining. Enjoy. Still love the show. Keep doing what you're doing as long as it's legal. Ah, that's no fun. Best regards, Joe. And Joe, now I'm I'm my my memory has um, been rattled. Jogged. Jogged. Thank you. That's the more proper word. Thank you, Liz. And uh, Joe uh, was one of the ones that um, met up with us. Uh, a, a, probably now about three or more years ago in Chicago. Um, he works at, uh, at O'Hare for another airline. Okay. Uh, let's play a little bit of this video or maybe the whole thing. We'll see. Nope. That's the one we just played. Oh, wrong one. <laughs> I was thinking this one has it, pause on it too. Wait a minute. <laughs> very similar. Right. Deja vu. Yeah. Oh, this is from Vaz Aviation. Real aviation communications. Simulated view of a uh, 380. Please confirm I don't think we can use Alpha Kilo. Uh, I'm Charlie 34. It's not Tower Gate. I'm ready to I believe Charlie 34 is okay for your type. What type is that? How does that bloke sit on the tail? Charlie like that, 34 that Alpha picture? is the actual gate number, it's, uh, but it's right there at Charlie 34. The, the issue, uh, Emirates 241, is the gates that are beside the gate. That's what the issue is for you being able to park there. And there's no one on either side of you, so it is okay to use. Okay, can we have again the clearance for the taxi all the way to the gate, please? Straight ahead. Cross runway 33 right, Alpha, hold short Alpha Kilo. All right. Um, I've flown into Toronto many, many times with the 380. I've never parked at the Charlie uh, gates. My paperwork shows that the taxiways in that direction are all red for us, not approved. The Charlie gate is not uh, approved for us. And... Um, we're going to need uh, follow me. We're going to need wing walkers if you want us to park over there. Emerson 241, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to get you a phone number you can call yourself because I, I, I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, it's perfectly adequate for, I don't, and I can't speak for your paperwork, but I'll get you a phone number. You can call them. I can pass you over to Apron as well. You can talk to them. That's all I can do for you. Uh, as far as wing walkers and the follow me vehicle to get to Charlie 34, that's another thing we're going to have to go through the GTA for. But just stand by, hold your position, and I'll get, uh, I'll get you a phone number. Yeah, well, I'm not calling anybody from here. Uh, park break is going to be set. You will have to arrange a uh, follow me and wing walkers, because my paperwork shows this is all red, taxiways, uh, once I get, once I enter at uh, Alpha Kilo there. And um, 
I, I just I, I can't take the plane there until I have uh, confirmation that uh, it's okay to go. Yeah, he has a good point. Note to him that uh, Alpha between Alpha Lima and Alpha Kilo is restricted uh, to a, a smaller wingspan than uh, we've got. So, is that no time no longer apply, or have I misread it? From what I understand, you guys are good down Alpha towards Alpha Kilo, and you restrict uh, taxiway Bravo to a code C. Yeah, we've got that, but there's also a no cam. Um, oh, sorry, we've misread the uh, the time. I apologize. Uh, hello, it's Emirates uh, 241 Super. Emirates 241 Super, Okay, we have been told to enter Alpha Kilo and then go to Charlie 34. Um, all our paperwork has uh, red taxiways to the left of Alpha Kilo, and Charlie 34 is a red restricted gate for this aircraft. We have no uh, no guidance. So if you want us to park there, we're going to need a uh, wing walkers uh, for the uh, the aircraft, I suppose. Emirates 241 Super, that has already been arranged. Uh, you will be parking on Charlie 34 Alpha, which is a 380-only gate. And I do have safety officers and wing walkers uh, ready to be available. And if you need a follow-me vehicle, I can uh, have that arranged as well. Well, follow-me, I probably don't need, but I will need the wing walkers. Uh, and, yeah, I guess we'll have to talk to our company about changing some uh, paperwork because uh, everything I've got says that's uh, not approved for 380. But, uh Okay, just confirm you'd like us to continue along Alpha, enter at Alpha Kilo, and then you will have uh, somebody to uh, to guide us in watching our uh, wings to uh, the gate. Uh, that is correct. You can continue down Alpha in Alpha Kilo, and uh, I do have safety officers on the corridors ready for you to arrive there. Very good. Understood. Thank you. Uh, as I said, I've been to Toronto many times. It's the first time I've ever uh, parked here, so uh, sorry for the confusion, but we just got to be careful what we do with this big bird. Big bird. No, absolutely, we understand, and I guess uh, today is day one for us as well to have you guys over there, and I think they're just doing it because of congestion for international arrivals. Okay, that's uh, fine. We're uh, on our way. See, they all loved each other. A happy ending. (laughs) Crunch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this this video that we're watching here, it's not the typical um, vast aviation with the radar display it's a kind of a sim version yeah it's a nice version. video it's a nice yeah it's very nice flight sim yeah or something like view of uh emirates uh a380 uh taxiing actually mostly stopped while they argue and di- or discuss <laughs> it was all very polite discussion yeah, it was. Discourse, i would say actually. Yeah, canadian yeah. well stefan uh has you know uh, experienced this on in various places, and even I've experienced it frequently uh, in JFK with the three forty six hundred, because uh, it you know it's such a long airplane you can't go around tight corners because uh, you drag your main wheels through the grass. They they don't you know they just won't make the turn. Uh, and uh, we used to frequently be asked to go down taxiways and make corners that we on our taxi maps um, had them marked out uh, as, as not uh, suitable for our type. So, you know, we'd end up in these sort of arguments, but the ground controllers at uh, JFK were not nearly as accommodating. No, they're not quite as polite. <laughs> as they are at Toronto. <laughs> they're nice, polite Canadians. Yes. 
but being polite like this is not as fun as listening to the, <laughs> the very abrasive <laughs> controllers yeah. and communications yes. at uh, uh, Kennedy. Exactly. Anyway, well, um, thank you, Joe. All's well that ends well. Yep, all's well that ends well. Thank you, Joe, for sending that in. Uh, very, very uh, entertaining. Okay, and as I said, you know, it was the first time that they had anybody had ever put a 380 over there, apparently. Uh, it was a new thing for the controllers as well, mm -hmm. so a lot of confusion there. But they worked Perhaps it out. they should have briefed the captain before he got airborne. That would have been a good idea. Yeah. but I guess the airport would have to brief all potential A380 operators coming into Toronto that they were going to put one. them on that gate so operator. that they could then have it changed on their... Well, Liz is saying that uh, there's just one A380 operator that flies into Toronto. Happens to be Emirates. Uh, you know, a quick, quick phone call to... Yeah. Hey, <laughs> yeah. we changed this. To you Don't be surprised. Yeah. It's all but, good. Yeah, we got it worked tell out. Tell captain. Yeah. I've mentioned it to uh, on the show before, but I, I remember going into Oklahoma City uh, one time several years back. Just happened to be the first day that they were opening the new terminal or the new concourse and our new gates, and I was just bebopping over to where we always parked, and and then uh, you know, where are you going, Delta? I mean, excuse me, where are you going, Acme? Um, Delta was another flight that was out on the on the airport having yeah, yeah. Uh, confusion oh, as well. Yeah, sorry, Delta didn't mean you. We yeah, not you. Me. I mean, act me. Uh, yeah, and I said, "Well, I'm going to gate," and he goes, uh, "Today is your your the opening of this new gate, gate 22 or whatever it was." I went, "Huh?" <laughs> we stopped. Okay. All right. Looks like there are people standing over there waiting for us. Okay, let's go over there. Yeah, they've got they've got banners and flags. They did. No, they did. Well, <laughs> in the inside, they had like actually a ribbon cutting ceremony. Yeah. Like it was a big deal. Oh and my god! I'm thinking, you know, it no one nice. had told you. It would have been nice if there was some note, <laughs> a little comment, some like remark, comment on the flight yeah, plan or something. Hey, oh, by the yeah. way. Hey. You know, the gate that you've been going to for the last decade or more? Uh, we're not going there anymore. Uh, oh, I love it. I know. It oh, was like, so come funny. on. Somebody call yeah. me up yeah, or the something. People who, the people who need to know are always the last. I know. It seems like. Yeah. That's not the last. I, and I love the way the uh, uh, the air traffickers seem to think we have telephones on the flight deck. I mean. <laughs> yeah, just, we'll give you a, you can just call them. Yeah. Uh, I used to, go, uh, you know, there are people sitting 10 feet behind me with telephones, but I haven't got one. What mm -hmm. do you think I have? That's <laughs> what the Bluetooth function on your headset is for. <laughs> yes. There you go. Uh, what do you think, uh, Liz? Keep going in order? Uh, just keep going, I think. Yeah, all right. They're all good. Number nine, Keith um, sends us this. Rough. Good morning, APGers. Well, it might be morning where you are, but not where most of us are. This is Keith from Little Rock, back from our 18-hour nonstop to and back from JFK Singapore to Phuket. I ran out of new APG shows to listen to. Wow. Okay. So I went back to hear episode 483, Defending Our Honor. I wanted to provide some feedback on the unstable approach and landing at Paro, Bhutan. One of my favorite YouTubers, Sam Chewy, sat in the cockpit for this approach about a year ago. The video is insane. According to the captain of the Bhutan Airlines A319, there are only a few captains authorized to captain an aircraft into this airport. As they start the approach, he comments that they always turn off the ground proximity system. 
The video is a bit long, but the last six minutes or so show the approach and landing. Not for the faint of heart. My favorite part is when the captain does a Buddhist prayer before starting the approach. Anyway, blue skies. Doesn't everybody? And strong tailwinds. Yeah. Always. Right. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Some chanting, too. I've seen Air America. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I want the guy coming around my airplane blessing it. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, so you, I'm gonna... you remember that bit in Air America? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, it's been oh, okay. a very, very long time since I've seen that movie. I don't remember really much of it at all. I guess oh, I need okay. to go back and watch it again. You do. You okay. do. Especially the bit where the, the Buddhist monk comes around and blesses this bloke's airplane oh. before he gets okay. off. <laughs> as long good. as they're not throwing coins in the engine for good Yeah. Luck. Yeah. <laughs> That's not good. All right. I'm going to play this video. I'm going to fast forward it to I'm somewhere near the end where they're actually flying this approach. So here we go. And to stream. I'm going to fly Bhutan Airline A319. Fly to Paro. Okay, so there's some stuff, some more stuff. They're flying now. Oh, eating. Kit Kat bar. What? Yeah, I love a it. Kit Kat bar. Mountains, more mountains, mountains. I missed the. Dangerous mountains. I'm going backwards Very now. I want to find mountains. the Kit Kat bar. <laughs> Mount Everest. <laughs> okay. Uh, going back to where I think approximately this approach. Uh, they crash. <laughs> Before the crash. Have a nice little music in the background too. I wonder if that's Very in the cockpit as well. Inspiring. It is. You need it. It's it's necessary. Whoa. Okay, they're going through well, this he's valley. He's not pointing at the runway yet. Let me assure you of that. No. Well, I don't see the runway yet. Nope, we can't see the runway yet. Yep. All right, come across this ridge here. Yeah. So that 500 was not like 500 feet on the approach. Just nope. like no. a bit of ground whistling under the nose. Exactly. Yep. All right. Yes, um, I do love the noise they play on the flight deck. It's very exciting, yeah. isn't it? I'd like to get some of that for my jet. Oh, there's yeah. a runway. I oh, see it now. my God. I don't see again. anything wrong with this approach. This looks perfectly normal. Well, you know, in your world, this is normal. <laughs> Not in our world. That's right. This is this is not always. Oh, I would have lined oh, up on stuff. the big black thing. 200. He's lined up on the taxiway by the looks of it. Nope, that's the runway. No, the black thing is the taxiway. <laughs> yeah, the one with all the. Uh, that's the mistake I would have made. The one with all the <laughs> rubber marks from Retard. touchdowns. Retard. Retard. And touchdown. Retard. That was a nice land. Yeah. Boom. It doesn't appear to be a very long runway either, does it? No, it doesn't. No. And it's pretty high He's altitude. He's almost run out already. All that. Thin very air. good. Very yeah. good. I'm impressed. At least the weather but was you're good. right. He hasn't got a lot of spare room, has he? No. Nope. 1,000 feet. 7,000. Is that the elevation or the length of the runway? That's the elevation. Both. Ah. <laughs> yes. They're equal to each other, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, probably about the same. Wow. That's yeah. what they call balance field, when the elevation is the same as the runway. Oh, really? That's the definition. Huh. <laughs> I didn't know that. I learned yeah, something today. You learn something new every oh, time we do the show. <laughs> don't believe everything I say. Uh, trust me. We've learned that lesson a long time ago, Nick. Yeah, trust me. I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, thank you uh, for sending that in, Keith. And again, show notes if you want to watch it yourself. Um Mike, definitely. Mike uh, writes this in, number 10. Uh, Hello, APG crew. I'm embarrassed to admit that I am several episodes behind at the minute. 
most Ooh. everybody listening is several, <laughs> several behind. Having only recently finished episode 483, I'm a flight test engineer, which has me traveling quite often, and that really cuts into my APG time. Unacceptable. Anyway. Yeah, traveling's when you listen. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's the perfect yeah. time to listen, unless you have to do something well. Unless you're the one flying. Yeah, if you're the one doing the flying. If you're the one yeah, driving for the travel. It's, or yeah. flight test engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in episode 483, you shared some incredible feedback from First Officer Rico, where he detailed his struggles in his journey into professional aviation. I just wanted to reach out and thank Rico for sharing that inspiring story. I'm 34 and just beginning my journey into changing careers and getting my ATP. I've also got some obstacles to overcome along the way, and at times that can be really discouraging. But hearing his story was so inspiring, so much so that it made me actually send in some feedback, something that I would normally never do. Thank you to Rico for the reminder to stay motivated and stay focused. That way, when the train slows down, you can be ready to time your jump and make your move. And thank you to the APG crew for highlighting such a great story. I just wanted him to know that his story made a difference for at least one person out there. Well, two, I suppose. My four-year-old daughter wants to be a pilot, too. Oh, <laughs> that's, so cool. that's brilliant. Thanks for the great show, and may the snack basket always have your first choice available. <laughs> yeah, this guy does a lot snack of flying. Snack basket? I want a three-course <laughs> yeah. meal. Uh, well, sometimes the flight isn't that long. Then yeah. you just get the snack basket. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the uh, the little um, chewy granola bar things are really good. Highly oh, recommend. Fair enough, fair enough. Mm -hmm. How do you spell Mike's, uh, sorry, pronounce Mike's surname? Mike. Grizlecki. Grizlecki, I'm thinking. I don't know. Gris Mike, Gris let me know. Grizlecki. Grizlecki. Very nice. It sounds know. a good attempt. Somebody who lives in the Chicago area probably uh, should be able to, or has lived. Nice to see he hails from the names. land of full names. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is from the land of full names, but I guess those opposing guys are okay too. Yeah, they are. Wow. In small doses. It's a weird thing. When you find yourself inside the triad, you just have to revert to initials and yeah. phonetic fair alphabet. Enough. Yeah, yeah. Fair so enough, I guess yeah. this is uh, Mike Golf, right? Uh -huh. Well, if you're going to write some feedback, uh, Mike, that's really nice feedback to send in, mm -hmm. actually. It really is. Because I actually, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think we all appreciated uh, Rico's uh, story. It was absolutely brilliant. I just liked his analogy of um, staying motivated and focused so that when the train slows down, you can be ready to time your jump and make your move. That was yep. just a really nice way to put it. I can like picture someone going, here's my stop. That's Jumping it. off the train. Yeah. The control room right, just right. informed me that she has connected these two gentlemen, Ooh, Mike and Rico. Oh, Liz, doing yeah. a fantastic job in the background behind there. The, behind the scenes. As always. Thank you very much, for Liz, for doing that. Jeff, I would say 12 and 13 for sure. Okay. 12 and 13. Getting some direction from the control room. Uh, she wants us to do 12 and 13 for sure. So let's uh, move to item 12. So i got to do a little setup here first before yeah. I... Tim Van Ram in the chat room is just set telling us that uh, opposing bases have a tiny one. Hmm. RV, that is, I think. Oh, RV, oh, uh, tiny okay. RV. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. RV <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure how he knew that, but. I, yeah. 
Yeah, well, let's just leave that. I'm not here to that. question these things. Let's just leave it nope. there. Just right accept there. and move on. All right. So uh, Stefan sent this feedback in for Tillman Renewable renewable Fuel. Okay, let's uh, have a listen. Hi, APG crew. Hi, Liz. This is Stefan from Germany calling. I'd like to give you some feedback to episode 494. And feedback to Tillman from Berlin calling uh, or giving some feedback about renewable fuels, SIF fuels, sustainable aviation fuels, all these different names you call that. And i like to make a warning. This feedback for me may contains humor. You were also laughing uh, at a little bit at his uh, feedback. I think mainly because about he was explaining in detail the process how you create uh, kerosene from um, yeah, out of thin air and uh, energy. And you're also a bit making humor about this only one ton a day production, which is, uh, f of course, ridiculously low for aviation to um, operate uh, from that. But, hey, there's one thing um, which is very, very serious. Those sustainable aviation kerosene contains basically no sulfur because it's made out of water and carbon dioxide and no sulfur and sulfur is the main condensation nuclei for all the aircraft contrails you see on the sky that means with this kind of kerosene there are basically no contrails so my dear pilots this is a serious question how shall we now hide our chemtrails in the future. I mean, this is, honestly, this is serious. I mean, you know, everybody from us pilots know how to get, um, you know, how difficult it is to produce a natural contrail picture with our chemtrails. But spraying without contrails needs a complete new mixture. Do you have any ideas how to accomplish that? Less barium, more air wick, or whatever. What, what shall we mix on those chemtrails in the future if there's no sulfur. I'm looking desperately for your suggestions. Greetings from Hamongi. Bye-bye. <laughs> so I'm mm. displaying um, some included uh, images uh, with some very colorful uh, chemtrails. Uh, which Coming out of a Virgin Atlantic A340. I yeah, noticed. well, I wasn't going to mention that just to try to keep you anonymous uh, as much as possible. <laughs> but I see. Um, I, don't, I don't work for them anymore, so I don't. Oh, mind. Okay, okay. I see um, adrenaline, spider eggs, cirrus extract, ordinary washing ordinary detergent. Ordinary washing detergent. <laughs> yep. And other colorings and preservatives. Color, colorings and preservatives. And, Wow, Airwick. I think he's trying to cook up a contrail so it. that they uh, can hide what's their the chemicals. chewy candium. <laughs> chewy candium. Sounds I love tasty. that. That's a I love that yeah. element. Um but now I like styrofoam flakes to be I, honest. They're I'm a little confused very difficult though, to digest. Honestly, I'm I'm confused because I thought getting to the point where we can make those chemtrails invisible is the goal, right? So that well, yeah, people don't know exactly. we're doing it. Well, that would be oh. ideal. But, but if you make, I thought, I thought that was at a classification level, well beyond this podcast. I, I, are you sure yeah. you're allowed to say that? No, probably not. Yeah. I'll have to edit it in post. Yeah, 
Yeah, you probably will. Or you're going to get some guys in, you know, black sunglasses <laughs> visiting your door. Uh, mind you, now you've moved up into the mountains. They may take some time to find Shh, you. Don't, don't tell them where I am. <laughs> oh, man. Did we cover uh, the yeah, very that... serious article from the BBC, though, about contrails slash chemtrails the other last week when I wasn't here, though? Mm. Uh, we had one about reducing the amount of contrails because they enhance global warming. Yes. We did? That's what yeah. I was thinking of. Was I yes, there? Yes, we did. <laughs> I don't remember that. That was on this show. That. Yeah. Liz is going, I don't remember was, that either. It was a thoroughly ridiculous article, in my opinion, but... Um, I, Oh, okay. well, the, the science behind it, that, this particular article it. was correct in that yes. uh, if you if you uh, get rid of your contrails, uh, then um, heat uh, will be able to escape from the earth, whereas otherwise, uh, because of the greenhouse effect. It just blocks effect, out all ability for... No, no, it, 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 heat, sun rays can come through, but when they try and escape, they, when the heat changes frequency after reflecting... Uh, re uh, reflected heat changes frequency. It bounces back off uh, clouds and contrails and stays in the atmosphere and enhances global warming. I think the mm -hmm. science is correct. But whether it has the... Uh, the ridiculous bit was about how to fly around uh, and not How to create. fly and not create contrails. Yes. yes, that was the ridiculous bit. That was the ridiculous bit. bit. Yeah, like with teaching pilots how to change We need to, to teach pilots how level. to change... Uh, smoothly, yes. yes. That the yes. So the science is more or less great, but whoever it was uh, writing it seemed to think uh, pilots were imbeciles and oh, didn't know this... how to change altitude. Okay, this and, is something uh, that was quite some time ago that we covered. Uh, I read it quite recently. Yeah, it, we may not oh. have done. Actually, it maybe show. we maybe didn't cover I, it. We'll have to. It may have been something that I just saw in Twitter. <laughs> That's possible because Liz and I are still going, huh? What is he talking about? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> well, Nick and I read it anyway. Okay. So well, maybe, yeah, you maybe read the BBC. Next time you think it was something we should cover on the show, like put it in Evernote. <laughs> yeah. Let the rest I, of us. I, know. I assumed we. I assumed we had covered it on the show. But I don't think so. Yeah. I'm going like. Eh. Well, you don't know for sure. Well, I don't know. Last, last Liz. <laughs> All right. I don't think so. Liz, Liz is saying no. Nope, then nothing we definitely there. didn't do it. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Let's stick it in for next week. Well, okay. okay. Well, let's move 13. on with this. 13. And I think this is going to be our last one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, from uh, number 13 from Tim. Hello to all the crew. Just writing in to give a not so interesting update to my journey. Oh, come on, Tim. We'll be the judge of that. Last time I sent feedback was to get your opinion on my being able to obtain a third class medical with my history of depression. True to form, y'all shirked responsibility and said, go talk to an AME. Seriously. Darn right, we did. <laughs> Seriously, I did <laughs> yes. appreciate the thoughts each of you shared on it and Captain Nick for sharing some of his personal story. So I finally bit the bullet and have scheduled my medical with an examiner in OKC since I'll be out there in December to visit some friends and do a magic show anyway. Not to mention, it's half the cost of seeing one in Arkansas. I'm in the process now of gathering up all of my medical records and getting all that ready for him. He did say that due to my previous attempt that it automatically has to be deferred to the FAA, but he didn't think it would be denied. But there was a 50-50 chance I may have uh, to get a neuropsych eval. So we'll see how that goes. And I'll keep you all updated as more happens. 
maybe my story can encourage someone else who is dealing with the same questions. If you want, if what you want is the PPL, then why not go for it and make the FAA make that decision? Don't make it for them by never trying and then wondering if you could have gotten it. True, it'll suck if they turn me down, but at least then I've done my part. And it's their fault that I don't get the PPL, not mine. Weird way of looking at it, but maybe, but I'd rather go that route than wonder, what if? Oh, I hope it doesn't offend anyone on the crew, but I think my best bet is not to tell them I listen to APG, especially if I have to meet with a psychologist. Just trying to improve my chances. <laughs> we don't blame you at all, Tim. Very sensible. Yeah, very yeah, sensible. If you describe it as a podcast, you might get away with it. If you just say you keep hearing voices in your head, then yeah, that might be a your problem. imaginary friends in your phone <laughs> yeah. that would not work yeah. very well. Yeah. Well, Yenzo, thanks for each podcast and best wishes. Be safe. Best wishes to you, Tim, in Arkansas, going to OKC, Arkansas. Oklahoma City. Actually, um, that's a very interesting update. Um, yeah, you know that you've actually talked with the AME there, and they think um, there's a reasonable chance. So yeah, we, we, yeah, that is good. Yeah, very so positive. You're saying there's a chance. So what you're saying is there's a chance. But I, I agree, Tim. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? Yeah, I nope. think like you got to nope. take. Yeah. Then living and your this life is the first wondering. step. So yeah. we, we we trust it'll go well. Yeah, please do update us, uh, whether it's a positive or negative update. We uh, we because we care for you and about you. And uh, all of us do. So we're one big, giant, Absolutely. happy family. Well, maybe not always so happy, but mostly. Anyway. I'm happy. All right. Well, good. Me too. I'm happy that the show's <laughs> over. Uh, and this is where we talk about, or someone does. Oh, I do. Uh, the website, uh, airlinepilotguy.com. And there you'll see all kinds of stuff. Uh, let's see if I can find the little thing. Uh, Thing that we can put up there like this this out right here uh the latest aviation news and answers to your questions and that's where you can find all the podcasts and the plane tales and uh, information about the crew and the community and the coffee fund and we have merch and we have the apg library and uh, ways to contact us and the community calendar and much much more so check it out airline pilot guy dot com and of course in this day and time you got to be on the social meds the social medias so Everyone's stuff on is i know who isn't come Everybody. on <laughs> all right if they're not they're probably not listening to our show we'll mm, probably uh, shouldn't be. but if for some reason you're not and you or you are and you don't know where to find us you could try uh facebook oh, wait nope that's sorry i was trying to go with what liz sorry, was putting sorry. up there but, <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> that's what i get for trying to there we go facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy that's one way you can interact with us in the community you could also head over to twitter we are at apg crew and you can find all of our individual twitter handles pinned to the top of that page um, we're also on instagram also apg crew there as well but if you really want the you know the the deep dive the behind the scenes where all the the cool kids hang that's on slack and i'm gonna yeah. let hillel tell you about slack bunch of slackers over there on slack Oh well, I hear the uh, hear the shower again. Let me hang on. Says hello. Do you have time for for Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. I know. Come on, come on over here. Got plenty of towels in that bathroom here at this Marriott in Columbia. Come over here, sit down, and tell us about Slack. 
APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you very much, Hillel. We can always count on you telling us about. Where's the soap? Uh, yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's in there in the soap dish, I think. Uh, Anyway, I got some soap. Yeah, I got your soap right here. All right. Well, thanks, Hillel. And also a big thank you to our controller, control room person, Ray, producer, director, Liz Piper. Thank you, Toronto. Liz. Great She's playing awesome. child. Yes. He does a lot behind the scenes. And also, don't forget. Not we, anymore. Well, uh, we'll change that, Liz. <laughs> We'll change that. I do need, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, trying to do all this on my own. Um, let's see, don't forget, uh, in a month from now, when we're recording on the 3rd of November, is our, um, is our uh, 500th episode. I'm trying to talk, and you keep talking to me and, and messing me up. <laughs> <laughs> He's Keep doing it, Liz. Up, Liz. Keep doing it. <laughs> Chatter away. I have a hard enough time, you know, like focusing on what I'm trying to say, and with you saying things in my ear, I can't. I can't do it. Anyway, Bet you um, would not survive on PTUK. Uh, I know. <laughs> I know. Again, that's a very professional uh, show. Not not like this. Anyway, uh, don't forget, we have our 500th episode coming up, a recording and celebration. Uh, if you want to join us. In real time, uh, in real life, uh, we have that one going on over there in the UK and at the Farnborough oh, hey. Fast uh, Museum. And we free have... Free beer. Uh, pardon? Bring beer? Okay. Free, free, free beer. Free oh, free beer. beer. Oh, nice. Uh, well, there you go. Definitely get your submissions in. So okay. Right Absolutely. And we have uh, something similar going on. It's not going to be quite as nice, apparently. Uh, I don't know that we'll have free beer. Um, well, but maybe. I, we'll have one free drink for everybody that attends. And then after that, you're on your own. <laughs> um, and, Bring some uh, to share. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to be at the Renaissance Concourse Hotel right there at the ATL. And we can watch airplanes and drink beer and eat uh, fancy food. Wait, and, no other crew. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Well, hopefully you'll pay attention to what we're doing on the show. And then you can look at all that. Or do it at the same time. I don't know. Just don't don't bother us and distract us. Anyway, um, don't get the way. So I'll in the link in the show notes for this show uh, and the last show, I have a link to uh, book your room if you'd like to uh, stay the night uh, at the hotel at the Renaissance Concourse. We have a special room rate, and that is about all I can think of. So until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Hi, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.
Just fine. Airline. 